Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bucks of America podcast. I am your host, Jeff Vance. And on this episode, I will be sitting down and talking with Tony Halinka out of La Crosse, Wisconsin. We will be discussing issues from CWD, hunting in different states, and also some of our goals that we want to accomplish in the near future. Thank you for tuning in. So this is pretty interesting because we were talking about the CWD, the new rules here in Wisconsin regarding that. So watch, like, tell me more about it because I've read some of the rules, but maybe you can give me some laps because you said you just got done speaking to the DNR. Yeah, I uh, contacted DNR because I had some questions about uh, the way I uh, get my locations where I hunt, the different counties that I hunt in, different private and public lands that I hunt on, uh, depending on how, where I hunt and how I have to move yeah. my white-tailed deer. Um, I had questions, a lot of the rules that they brought up were taking deer to a licensed processor or a taxidermist. Okay. They never mentioned anything about those of us that process our own deer meat. Okay. Like, oh, I haven't had to take, I haven't taken any deer to a processor for a long time. I'm the time. same way. I do it all myself. Yeah, we've done it. We've done it for many years all by ourselves, making our own sausage and roast and whatnot. Um, I called him up and he said, well, if you, if you quarter the animal and leave the skull and a spinal column in the woods, you're okay. Okay. So you can move those across to the uh, county line. I do have some of the other uh, instances where you can move your deer across the county line is uh, you can't transport whole deer carcasses or any deer brain, spinal column, lymph node tissue area outside of the county or adjacent county that the animal was harvested. And you're saying that this hasn't been, this has not gone into effect yet because it still hasn't been signed by the governor? No, it still does have to be signed by the governor. It is uh-huh. a uh, recommendation that the DNR board does put to curb uh, instances of CWD being transmitted uh, between deer. So what about uh, taking your the mount to the to the taxidermist? Now, do you actually have to cape the entire to cape the all the, the all of the, all the scalp off of the skull? The way I'm reading it, yes. Um, in my idea, I am going to cape the entire skull off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to cut the antlers off and have the clean uh, skull plate is what they uh, recommend, and then take the hide with the cape on and the skull plate all together to the taxidermist. Hopefully I have to use it this year, Mm -hmm. but if I don't, I might actually practice, if I shoot a buck that I'm not gonna take to the taxidermist, I might cape out the whole deer anyhow. And just do like a European mount possibly, depending size? Do the European mount or just, you know, the more practice you have at it, the better you get. That's true, because um, I, I myself, myself. Yeah, I agree, because now I have not, because my, 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 I shot my first buck last year, and so that was a pretty cool experience. I, I did follow the instructions, because I shot it in Minnesota, I followed the instructions to the way they wanted to do it, so I was able to take the animal, just lop its head off, take it over, and had it mounted. So now it gives me an idea, so now when I have, uh, when I, when I harvest my next animal this year, I'll actually spend, t- take some time and work around the skull and, and the edges of the bones this way. I kind of get an idea of mapping it because if you're, if you're brand new to the whole thing, you're going to have to spend some time and just walk yourself through it because you want to you buy by the laws, 
but also you want to curb the CWD because here in Wisconsin, we are the poster child of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've seen a couple people uh, cape out their animals using a, a screwdriver works a little bit better so you're not cutting into the hide. I know taxidermists, especially when you have to repair a hide up by the face, the hair is thinner yeah. and the hide is thinner. So it's a little bit harder to make it look natural. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people take like a, you know, I plan on putting in my pack a screwdriver this year. You know, you can use the one off my multi-tool, but I think just a regular screwdriver would. I think you can get the pack. leverage you'd want to. Yeah, especially exactly. now, nice thing is Facebook has got tons of taxidermists on that you can ask. And this way you can get their opinion, like how wide of the flathead you'd want to use. Yeah, that's very true. I, it's a good idea. Because mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't know anything about it because it's like, becoming a taxidermist it takes hours and it's like and it's a it's a passion mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where i wouldn't mind getting in as, as my years get older because just because it's just be fun just to be able to do that and if i'm retired i can dedicate a lot of time to it and just learning a whole craft and they say the best way to learn is using squirrels because of all the uh, limbs and everything you have to work with and such and uh there's um a taxidermist here in in the area that uh when he was going through it, he had mentioned like his wife had mentioned to uh, my fiance that it's it's strange because you'd see all these squirrels pop up around the house. They weren't there before, and he'd get really ruthless with them because it's like to me, you know, you're taking a shower and all of a sudden, boom, there's a squirrel right there in front of you. <laughs> I know uh, I am going through right now reading the uh, Wilderness Warrior Teddy Rose uh, about Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Um, one of his first hobbies as a child was taxidermy. No kidding. He, uh, they actually have a owl, I believe, in the Smithsonian that was done by him when he was a boy. Wow. And they have pictures of it, and I've looked at pictures on the internet, and you would have swear it was done yesterday. I mean, the amount of skill he had at, in his teens at taxidermy was amazing. Wow. Now, did he continue doing that after he was elected, or did he just kind of... Stop doing that. I'm I don't not know that myself. far in the book yet. Oh, I okay. I don't think so. I've read a couple other books. I've read The Naturalist as well about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, once he got out of his presidency is when he did his uh, uh, safari over to Africa. Mm-hmm. At that point, I think he had taxidermists there working with him for the uh, American Natural History Institute, I believe. I think you're close time. enough. Yeah, so uh, um, I don't think he did it in his later years, but I think when he was younger, years into, into birds a lot, he did a lot of the taxidermy on the birds. No, I'll be, that's those, some of the birds that you can harvest are just absolutely immaculate. I know I was listening to a Meat Eater podcast, and they were talking about when he had somebody that was just in China, and the last time it, they saw a white person there was when uh, Roosevelt's uh, son was over there back in the 1930s. So it's like, that was talk of, of the town then, and it's like, it shows how long that people haven't gone back in there, but it'd be fun to go back in there and check out what's all out there. Even if you can't hunt, it's like just to, just to experience all that and actually see pheasants in their natural realm and see the, I can't remember the bear, but there's a bear that they have there too that's um, explained in a such a way that it's over my head. It's, there's a very distinct uh, Latin term for it that maybe somebody else can elaborate for us. Uh, yeah, that'd be definitely interesting just to look at the uh, uh, geography that they have over in different countries and in, in, mm-hmm. in China and Africa would be interesting. Let, let alone be able to see like the amount of equipment that they had with them at that time frame. 
Oh yeah. Looking at how some of these people captured some of these massive bears in the 1920s and 1930s and even the 1850s, what the, the primitive technology they had and what we have now is like, where was this compared to these guys? These guys were out there and sub below without um, hot hands in their in their gloves or their boots. It's like, I bet those guys would be calling us a bunch of names that we can't mention on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, they were definitely a lot tougher than we were. Uh-huh. Now, have you done any hunting outside of Wisconsin, besides Wisconsin, Minnesota? Um, as a matter of fact, I did do one hunt in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my bachelor party. Oh, that's a good way to spend a bachelor party. <laughs> yes, it was. We went uh, to Monona, Iowa. There was a game farm out there. It was the only time I ever hunted on a game farm. We went okay. there uh, on a Friday afternoon, talked to the owner, and we had a wild boar. Oh, wow. That was uh, set out on there. It was 330 acres that was fenced in. Mm-hmm. We had one boar. Okay. That they released, and uh, at about we started at sunup on Saturday. At about ten a.m., I had uh, shot it. I shot it with a forty-four caliber pistol. Oh wow! So, so I mean, you it wasn't up close, close and personal, huh? Yeah, it was close, and we actually uh, we had kicked it up, and I, had, uh, you know, it, it wasn't running that fast. I ended up shooting at it, and then hit it, and then as we're tracking it, it turned around and came back at us. Oh wow! But I think the reason it came back at us is because in this farm pen they had uh, elk, whitetail, and ram. Okay. In this area, and there was a big elk that was cheap, that was kind of driving it back. Oh, towards okay. Us. I gotcha. So once we let the elk take off, because you know this was uh, nine years ago, and we were uh, let's let's just say I couldn't afford an elk on this place. Mm. I could only afford the the hog. And I didn't want to uh, have any problems, so we let the elk take off, and then the the, the pig, you know, they have a uh, real good sense of smell, but they don't really see that well. That's true. So we were able, I shot them one more time, and then we were able to harvest them at that point, too. So, I mean, was, this hunt was in the August time. Like I say, it was a bachelor party. It was a group of about five guys of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we were happy by 10 a.m. to be... You know, we had fun, we had our hunt, and then we, you know, did normal bachelor party stuff after that, so... Um, we got everybody got a chunk of meat. We ended up um, skinning it out, quartering it. We made a bunch of sausage. Had some pork ones with it. That's too. Very, that's pretty cool. It was. It how was big was cool. the boar? I I don't know. I don't know how much it weighed. I can't. I gotcha. It. So, but yeah, I've hunted Iowa once, um, but we did a, a bunch in Minnesota. When I was younger, but I stick to um, the area in Wisconsin. I do do some hunting up in uh, Lincoln County as well. Very cool. See, I've gotten the experience. Of, I've got to hunt in Iowa when I was younger. I had to hunt in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Did a little bit of hunting last year for a wedding gift. We went out hunting for dove and coyotes because I have a friend of mine that has a, a hobby farm and they have issues with coyotes. So it's like, all right, we'll come on down there. And we, we, research, we spent well over a year researching the zone issues and figuring out what we need to make sure we get for tags and stuff to make sure we're all legal and so I brought my tag I brought my uh, uh, call down we got everything all set up we found a makeshift uh, blind but during the wedding though there's so much human scent they never came in which is understandable because there was well over 60 people in the area so I was like they ain't gonna come and shortly after we left and like they started popping up on the trail games like that's hey, all right at least at least I got an idea what's going on mm-hmm. and out there in Arizona it's, it's it's a big difference out there especially even even in hunting in November 
we, we saw highs in the low 80s and it's they have a game refuge not even i don't know a quarter mile away the, the primary game they hunt out of there's doves and so they have you have a window of opportunity to hunt from six from sun up to noon that's it that's all it is because it gets way too hot but but the nice thing is what they've done to maintain the hunting community in that in that part of arizona this is up by king man mojave uh fort mojave they put up blinds and then you just and at the, at the, the parking station you just put in a little ticket where which one you're in so this way somebody's not driving behind and, and then they're wasting time so this way then they're like okay a like one through six have been taken so all right we got 12 they actually have like 20 some blinds out there that you can set in they're all they're all set up for you so this way you don't have to bring anything you just bring your firearm you bring your shot out there and you're good to go the only thing they, they request is to pick up your shot now you're starting to find wild boar out there now at, at this time last november they hadn't initiated any protocol yet so it's one of those things where it's like avoid at all costs well what are you trying to do here are you trying to stop this from reproducing or you're going to try to put a hold to it like i like missouri missouri's done a really good job of taming the problem because they do not allow any hunting at all they, they find out they, they by trapping they'll actually end up harvesting or gathering more pigs than by hunting itself plus and it keeps them from people from hunting them down to that last 20 percent this way that there's a way to stop it now we're just we're gonna probably end up seeing stuff in iowa illinois wisconsin it's gonna eventually gonna make up there but the unique thing about boars there's only one genome which is suscrapa that's it and if you want to learn more about that meat eater is a great source for that resource or any outdoor magazine or book yeah it was i mean it was definitely fun i mean it's not one of the more sporting hunts i've ever been on but i mean you're sitting there with a bunch of guys from mm -hmm. that you went to school with and we're all had you know had a great time so that's pretty cool now uh i have a cousin that lives out in hawaii and i think i might take up on one of those uh hunts out there for um coos deer not coos yeah. deer what is it is that coos deer out there on, on lanai yeah, I don't know if they have coos deer out there. I know that there's a specific deer out there that they have pretty much you can shoot like something like 14 a day because they have so many of them because it's, it's a small island. They have some, their population is like 30,000. I know Rogan and Don Dudley and all those guys go out there and hunt quite frequently. And it's like, do you know how fun that would be to go out there hunting and having a rel, uh, a relative and a resident that lives in the state too. It's always a, always a plus. <laughs> and uh, his uh, wife's family is all spread out through the chain of islands there. So it wouldn't be hard to ask somebody to assist us because I got into the hunting industry not to make money or to talk on a podcast or just meet people and it's like now I have friends in Alaska and Washington and Oregon and Wyoming now which is dividing my time up to be able to make these hunts and stuff but making some simple sacrifices and saving up that money to do a public land hunt because oh, I just binge watched Fresh Tracks it's on Amazon. Do you have Amazon? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. I tell you what, listening to Randy Newberg, a Minnesota native boy, talking about his public land hunts and watching him go in there, it's like, it's living the dream, you know? It's like, we have such a beautiful opportunity that 90% of the world doesn't have an opportunity for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like you, binge watch that, too. I have it on. I watched an episode last night. Um, last year, I started hunting really hard at some public land that was not too far from here mm -hmm. about 30 minutes away and i even a lot of his public land hunt or all of them are out west uh -huh. i used a lot of the skills that he has there on my hunt here in wisconsin makes sense um you know the whole you know get there before the sunrise uh the friday of last year's gun season i left the house at 3 30 in the morning mm -hmm. and got to the truck got to the area where i parked 
hiked all the way up on top of this bluff where I could see across the ridge of this bluff. Oh, smart. And just and just sat down. I, and just like, okay, I got an hour before sunup. I'm just going to chill out here. It was plenty. I was plenty warm enough. And as soon as the sun came up, you can, in the faint distance, you can hear car doors starting to slam. Okay. And then 20 minutes later, here comes a doe and a couple fawns trotting right up the hill right to me. I shot the doe and I was dragging it down by 10 o'clock. I was down. These guys, they were doing a deer drive on it. Oh, I ended up running okay. into them. All right. As I'm dragging my deer down because there's a creek you got across and I was cleaning out my doe on the creek, eating, eating my lunch, eating my breakfast. And, and uh, they kind of looked at me and they're like, when did you get here? And I'm like, lot before earlier than you did <laughs> and he goes i bet you we kicked that deer right to you and i'm like yep oh that's, just that's hilarious sat there and smiled and, he, and they ended up getting they ended up shooting a, a small buck too mm-hmm. uh during the deer drive but uh you know I, I hunted out there and you know people in this area they talk about you know you go to these public lands and they're they're full of people you know i i hunted a lot bow hunted a lot i saw two people when i was in a tree stand mm-hmm um, one guy kind of walked close to me and I just kind of whistled, waved at him out of my tree stand. Mm-hmm. Guy backed right out. Same same thing happened with the other guy. And I hunted, you know, I'm talking from opening day to gun season. I'm putting at least, you know, I'm doing three, four hunts a week, usually yeah. on evenings. Um, when it comes back into November, I'm sitting all day. Um, I had a couple all day sits out there and I mm-hmm. never had a problem with people walking in on me and, you know, you know, you kind of, you get out there and you just start talking to guys, like you say, meet new people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was out there, I, I did a deer drive with a group of guys out oh, there. Oh, that'd be fun. Um, I went out there a couple weeks ago and did, did some walking around with a friend of mine and, and our two kids, our two boys did a nice big lap around this field because it's, it's, it's 267 acres. Wow, that's huge. That's split up by uh, uh, County Road. Okay, what about railroads? I know railroad, we've been, I know backhunters, backhunter country and anglers have been fighting the railroads that are opening up that whole trespassing thing because mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of public land that's just sectioned off because of railroads and you can't get there without crossing them at times. Yeah, um, I know even here in this area down by Stoddard in the wintertime where guys go ice fishing down by Stoddard, uh-huh. they'll, uh, they had some issues with that too. Um, I believe the uh, state representative from the area is uh, working on that right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've had problems with the railroads uh, just being able to cross it. Forever, everybody's always just crossed the railroads, not thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, that railroad is very busy. Yes. Um, now that they're bringing the oil from North Dakota, we got a lot of oil coming through this that area. That's very true. Well, one of my fishing spots is it's there. It's a boathouse, and 30 yards from the boathouse, the tracks are right there. and it, they, when we go out there fishing, I'll, I'll arrive out there about five o'clock, and by nine o'clock, we've had two trains pass us by. Oh yeah, easy, easy. Our fire station that I'm on is right next to railroad tracks there, and we'll we'll be either there training or cleaning up or something like mm-hmm. that, and you'll see there's railroad tracks or trains going past all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just something you got to deal with. I mean, there's you know there's a safety issue with with on the tracks. Yeah, and then plus the insurance too. We yeah. talked about that about insurance too, about how that plays a role in our hunting. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, you know it'll get it'll get figured out because it, because especially in our area, there's a lot of acreage out on the river bottoms that's mm-hmm. public land mm-hmm. that is difficult access. Yeah. Um, years ago, when I was in high school, we used to bow hunt that all the time because okay. um, you know we could go out there in flat bottoms. I grew up 
you know, right on the Mississippi. So yeah. we had flat bottoms right behind our house. Yeah. So me and my buddies and all of our dads would go down in the islands. Mm-hmm. And this was back when, you know, the DNR was giving away doe tags. Okay. And I've, like I said before, I've grown up eating a ton of venison throughout mm-hmm. the years. So we always had to shoot plenty of venison to feed the family and everything like that. I mean, it wasn't like a subsistence thing. We just chose to eat venison is what we preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had ample tags for all these deer. And we, you know, I shot my first deer down there. A lot of my buddies in school shot their first deer down there. My dad shot his first deer down there. You know, so we, you know, go down into that area and we uh, do little deer drives. Yeah. Do real slow walking deer drives. And once you've done them so many times, you kind of know which way the deer are going to run. And then you set your posters up and, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as you know guys grow up get families the the dads are older and don't want to walk around in knee-high mud too much anymore yeah i understand that it kind of breaks up it'd be fun to go down there to see if you know see if there's still plenty of deer down there i mean i go down there fishing a lot but i don't see them too often um Uh, here a few weeks ago i was driving down to brownsville minnesota for those who are listening if you go look on the Google Maps, you look up Little Cross, Wisconsin, you look all around there, you notice we're right on the hub of the Mississippi and Minnesota, all in Iowa, all right in that area. So when I was driving out to here, this is probably late July, I had a buck drop out in front of me and I had a doe all within 50 yards of each other. Luckily, it's like I'm driving a big 5,000 pound vehicle. So it's going to be a speed bump for me. Anybody else, it's going to be a whole new car. <laughs> yep, absolutely. There's, uh, um, you know, even guys on motorcycles you know they're oh that's the scary stuff my dad has a neighbor right behind him that was uh, riding his bike deer jumped right out in front of him nothing he could do about it and now he is uh he's a disabled for the rest of his life really? yeah so yeah he he didn't he he was he's able to walk he able to do it fully but it's the the traumatic injury that he sustained it's one of those things where it's more it uh, wasn't able to allow him to return to the workforce but he's a very creative gentleman he ended up winning the contract for mowing the, the county uh, uh, lots, like the cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Guy does a great job. He goes through and makes sure all the, the gravestones are all cleaned up. He just does an immaculate job. And he's had the contract now for about 10 years. And then that's how long ago he got hit. So this would have, this is 2018, so 2008, 2007, when he hit the, the deer. But man, it's, it's one of those things where around a year when you're riding a bike, anywhere in the Midwest, even in the West, it's like, I would, it's worst fears. Yeah. Even even hitting a, probably a squirrel would probably mess their world up. Mm-hmm. We used to hunt on a property over by uh, Chaseburg, where the guy had a uh, he had an ultralight airplane. Okay. And he had a landing strip right in front of his house, mm-hmm. and he was he was even telling us when we first started hunting there, he goes, "I have a real concern about hitting a deer with my ultralight when I'm coming in." Okay. Um, you know, and he wasn't really a, a, a deer hunter or anything like that. They didn't mm-hmm. really know too much about it. But I got you. I want 20 deer taken off my property. Oh, wow. I mean, there was other guys that were hunting. Okay. Goes, I want 20 deer taken off my property. All right. like, we'll do our best to do it. Mm-hmm. But like I say, this was probably back in 2000 and probably around 2001, 2002, when this was going on, when mm-hmm. you know we were, we were hunting that property and it was nothing for, for us to see 20, 30 deer a night just sitting anywhere we what, wanted to. It was it was a pretty high populated area. Mm-hmm. I know down that this, because uh, those who hunt in the Minnesota area, this from pretty much Rochester, Minnesota, all the way down to the point where it goes Wisconsin, Iowa, 
in Minnesota, that used to be all intensive harvest, which meant that you'd get five tags. Mm-hmm. So and you could you don't even be a landowner. It's like you just go to the, you go to Fleet Farm, the DNR. Here you go. Now we had a really deep freeze here a few years ago that dropped those numbers drastically, and now we're starting to see the first transition into Minnesota with the uh, um, CWD. Now I was listening to Doug Dern's podcast with Joe Rowan here a few weeks ago. Now they the DNR went ahead and they tagged the dough. This dough path the travel path was 80 miles i heard that that's like, amazing you, you you never think you never would have thought of that you know and listening to watching listening to this like this is okay this could spread rather rapidly mm-hmm. then after hearing this podcast is coming out of the cities talking with uh, cody near from the from the first podcast and i saw um, three deer on the side of the road it's like i just wanted to pull over cut their heads off take it in say hey this is this positive mm-hmm. you know what i mean just to see how far it is because this is already right around cannon falls which is just 20, not even 20 miles south in cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I was, I was uh, I'm surprised to hear that that doesn't happen more often where there's uh, car deer kills that they don't test them. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great access point to mm-hmm. get more testing. And, and I agree. From some of the reading that, I, that I've done recently, it kind of seems like there's not enough testing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in order to make an educated decision on what the uh, state is going to do with uh, chronic wasting disease that they're going to need to be more testing. Um, there's roadkill deers make testing more accessible mm-hmm. uh, to whitetail hunters. I went on the DNR's website to look for the closest uh, place where they have a uh, testing site or testing available. Okay. Uh, there's a place in uh, West Salem, which is about uh, uh, right next to Lake Nashonic. There was the this is about 20, 30 minutes away. So that's 20, a big... 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only one in La Crosse County. Wow. Um, so, I mean, like you're talking, uh, you know, we're kind of in the really breadbasket of whitetail hunting in Wisconsin. At least I feel. The Driftless that's area in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, you know, everybody talks about the historic bucks from Buffalo County, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just south of Buffalo County. We got just as many big bucks in La Crosse County and, and, and Trempolo County and Vernon County and Monroe County. I mean, there We all got big bucks. We all got a lot of whitetail hunters. That so, is very true. Uh, I've seen them quite a, quite a few of them pop up on the social media. Mm-hmm. I'm looking, there's a, I found the record for La Crosse County here. I just got to pull it up and I want to give an idea of how big this buck is because here in lacrosse those who know matthews bow is only 30 miles away 40 miles away and it's like the revolutionary bow out there and it's being so close to the mecca of it, it's like you know finding out there's only one test station considering how many people that graduated college here because here in lacrosse we have three colleges now every year we have a graduating class and a lot of those guys like to come back in the fall mm-hmm. nope i do not have it on hand those who are unfamiliar with the Driftless area. The Driftless area was formed at the end of the last ice age. Now the last ice age was 12,000 years ago and there has been a several comets that struck the Upper Peninsula all across from New York stretching to right in the middle of um, South Dakota. Actual uh, geologists that have found traces confirming these and so that's why we see these massive boulders down in Utah so it was because of this because they believe that these waves were six, seven hundred feet tall. That's why we have the Great Lakes here in Minnesota. We have the lakes in Wisconsin, in uh, 
Seattle, but all these, if you look up at a uh, satellite view, you'll see all these little cracks and crevices. It's like you take water and you pour over sand and you watch it and watch all the water push it away. You'll see all how this was all formed and such. And it's quite amazing how catastrophic that was to create that. And it's like, I believe that's what causes the reset button here in, in society. Why we can't remember how we built the pyramids or the Sphinx and stuff like that. And there's still debates on how old these are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, if you want to look up some, it's, uh, his name's Dr. Randall Carlson. He's a, he's from Snake uh, River in Minnesota. He actually teaches down there. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast several times. The gentleman's very, very smart, and he knows his science. And when he breaks it down, he, it's, he just talks about pure passion. And, he, and this gentleman, what, grew up in the 60s and 70s, so it's like, he when he listens to some of his podcasts, he'll talk about some of his uh, acid trips back in the back in the day. But it, he breaks everything down in such a way that it's, it's very entertaining to listen to. And listening to it, like he went on a tour with Graham Hancock here two years ago. And what they did is they started here in Minnesota and they kind of went all the way out to Seattle all along 90 and just kind of taking stops and talking about everything and showing logic behind the science of what he's discussing about. And what's one of the key factors and why we, we don't have this memory of how such the large Monuments were created. That's interesting. What's the guy's name? Dr. Randall Carson. Doctor. Okay. And then uh, look him up. Yeah. And then you look him up, and then also uh, Graham Hancock. Now, I actually got to see him speak. I actually got one of his books, and he just came out with Musicians of the Gods, and he breaks down. He's he's a, a journalist, but he's also a scientific journalist, so he will cite sources. And he'll break everything down. The books are, are a little dry, but if you're fascinated by it, it breaks it all down. He he, he touches base of, on majority of the civilizations out there, and he's been into some very heated arguments for some Egyptologists. And right now, from what I saw from this article, because when I went to his lecture up in Minneapolis, because uh, Dennis McKenna, his brother was Terence McKenna. He these these two actually kind of pioneered some uh, plant-based medicines through what they spent the better part of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the Amazon jungle, okay. discovering some of the stuff, well, we, some of the remedies we have today that allows us to, to, to battle cancer and blood diseases and such like that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It's, it's uh, plant medicine's really making a comeback because it's finding out that it's, a, it's very versatile. And how this ties into our podcast here is that we're all about conservation, maintaining our Clear Clean Water Act, making sure our roads are good, making sure we maintain the earth better than what we can. Now, what, uh, getting back to the whole major reset abundance, like that day is going to happen someday soon. And the reason why we have these these uh, asteroids we have on on, uh, on the earth is that we pass through what they call the Torrid Meter Stream. Now, we pass through it twice a year, once in June, once in October. It takes about 12 days to go through both of these, go through it twice. But that's where we have these massive extinctions. Uh, the Tunguska event happened in June in 1908. If we would have, instead of focusing on Archduke uh, Ferdinand, we would have been focusing on the skies instead. But, you know, EOs prevail. And then it was 2000 it was in Russia that they had a, a meteor shower during the day, but that didn't change our, our uh, thought process either. We still brought our scope back into ourselves instead of looking like, hey, there's a big sky up there. We should pay attention to that. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Listening to 
podcast for those who are out there that actually listen to them on a daily. It's a very a vital way of maintaining a high education because as we get older, our time becomes less and less and it becomes very vital and very uh, important for us because that's the only thing we cannot exchange because once the day's done, that day is over with. And every day we reset with 84,200 seconds. And what you do with them will determine how you're going to execute the next 5, 10, 30 years. Very cool. Absolutely correct. I spend those 84,000 seconds thinking about white-tailed deer. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Especially we're, we're, we're literally nine days away from opening day here for uh, bow season. So I'm excited. I've been practicing myself. I've got my... 40 yard down, I got my 20 yard down, so it's like, I'm ready. Um, let's, let's get it, let's get it going, let's get it on. Yeah, I've been, uh, I just actually picked up uh, Matthew's Triax about a month ago. And uh, that, my friends, is Ruby right there. She is the guard dog, she's really young. <laughs> Ruby, calm down. Mm-hmm. That's all right though, she's a good dog, she's a good girl. <laughs> um, I picked up that Matthew's Triax about a month ago. Uh, got it all sighted in. Mm-hmm. I am, uh, Last time I shot, I was out to 60 yards. Wow. Hitting at about a five, four arrows and about a five inch pipe weight. Very cool. Um, actually, last Monday, I was at the uh, Winona Archer's Labor Day shoot mm-hmm. and I shot uh, a 525 out of 540. That's that, impressive right there, my friend. Yeah. And that got me uh, first place in that shoot. So I was pretty, I just found out today, a couple hours ago. So I was, I'm still oh, pretty excited about it. I've exciting. never won an archery to shoot before. So. Mm-hmm. I've been close, but I was, it was pretty exciting to see my name on the top. So. so what makes Winona so unique? Um, I enjoy their archery range. There's a greater distance in between targets. Okay. So the train is a little bit tougher, a lot of up and down in the hills. Mm-hmm. Um, makes me think of a lot of the hunts I've been on, where mm-hmm. I'm, you know, got to walk up to the stand or down to the stand, or I'll still hunt fairly often during uh, rifle season mm-hmm. or muzzleloader season. I'll still hunt uh, that as well. It just kind of makes the archer shoot a little bit more realistic. I've been to a couple other ones where they seem a little bit too much like a golf course. Okay. And this one's a little bit more like, you know, we have this archery range here to get you better at uh, shooting whitetails mm-hmm. or shooting whatever, you know, mule deer, elk, moose, all the different targets that they have. So. It was a really enjoyable time. I bet it was because I myself haven't done a done a, a shoot like that. It's I've been struggling with the golfer's elbow in my left hand, so it's one of the one that holds the the bow. So I get about 65, 75 arrows into my round, and it's like yeah. Once I start seeing it diminish on my returns, I just like all right, it's time for me to done. So this way I don't overextend myself and end up injuring it further on. So the nice thing is, is like I'm, I'm seeking help with it. So. I can become better at it. So but then when, it, when it comes down to crunch time, I am confident I'll put, put it where it needs to go. Because last year's block, I, I double-lunged it, and it's like, that was pretty impressive because the way he was courting around with me, it was just, he just showed me his shoulder, and it's like, I practice at 26 yards all the time. Well, actually, I practice at 40, so when I shoot at 20, it's just a chip shot for anybody. That's why I practice at 60, so exactly. 30, 40 is a, mm-hmm. an easy shot. Now those Easier, I should say. that is very true. Now for those who are just getting into archery, when you practice, you always want to double what the, the range you're going to be consistently hunting at. When you watch Cameron Haynes, he practices at about twenty, about forty, but he take consistently takes shots around fifty to sixty yards. Now this this man has not come out empty-handed since two thousand and nine, almost ten years of having a perfect record. 
except for when he goes overseas. That's that's always a, a different game. Because here it's like he trains in the mountains. He pays attention to everything like that. He kind of has the same uh, um, ear to the ground. He just now what makes him so special that he works hard. He absolutely works hard, and it's like I he inspired me to get a bow hunting. I think when you speak about Cameron Haynes and about the working hard, I think that's the, if I was to name one factor that makes an average bow hunter or an average hunter mm-hmm. into a really good one is that hard work. Yes. Um, putting in the time, uh, practicing, making sure that you at the crunch time can uh, pull it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing it, you know, practicing, you're just taking practicing for example. Practice with your hunting clothes on. It's practice true. with elevated heart rate. Mm-hmm. Practice with uh, different terrain. You see in the backyard here. I have I have uh, a range in my backyard. I can shoot uphill, downhill. I can put a tree stand in the tree and shoot from downhill. I've done all those things mm-hmm. uh, recently. Um, I even to the point time myself how long it takes me to get um, four sets of sticks in a tree stand up in the tree. It's Twelve mm-hmm. minutes, by the way. Okay. Um, Look at this guy. He's not bragging or anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, it wasn't always 12 minutes, and I, I bet you I can probably get a little bit quicker, but, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to make sure time-wise how long it's going to take me so I can plan how long it takes me to drive to the location, hike there. Mm-hmm. I'm very uh, Down to the minute? Down to the second? Not down to the second, but I'm a stickler for making sure I'm on time, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I want to make sure that if I'm getting into a location, I'm, I'm getting in quietly. I, I can take my time from the time I leave my vehicle to the time I get to my stand, so I'm not making any undue uh, noise walking on sticks or, you know, stepping over sticks, making sure I'm not alerting deer to my presence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, or even necessarily at hunting public land, making other people aware of my presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can get in there, get way far back um, into some of the thicker uh, locations where these deer are going to congregate no matter what time of the day they're going to come back to their home so once you find their home you can really locate that and kind of keep that as a as a little you know a coin in your pocket to make sure that you have that one up and sometimes it it takes the extra mile of of getting up early of of getting some time on on your uh binoculars early season and even late season too Mm -hmm. Um, a couple areas I've, i've driven past i'll park my truck and sit and watch late season once the snow is on the ground, once the foliage is down. Yeah. You can see all the trails as they're coming through down by the woods. Um, you know, it's, it's an enjoyable time. I, I enjoy that. I like being outside. My whole family likes being outside. Mm-hmm. So to go scouting, we'll go hiking through the woods while I'm scouting. <laughs> <laughs> we may be doing an enjoyable hike through the woods and have a picnic or anything like that. But I'm also on my GPS or on my phone with the Onyx Hunt. Mm-hmm. looking at trees and waypointing them the whole time I'm, I'm doing it so it's it's you know you kind of kind of make it make it fun but I would say the one thing that's going to take the difference between an average hunter and an exceptional hunter is that ability to go the extra mile and just kind of uh, one of the one of the terms they use in the military is embrace the suck you know uh, yeah I've, I've heard that from a couple podcasts I listen to mm-hmm. and they, they'd say it quite frequently yep so um but like I, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the times, even like cold weather, getting used to, you know, you get a little bit cold. It's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I always kind of think like, at least I get, at least I'm going home and my house is warm. That's true. <laughs> Have you heard of the gentleman Wind Hoff? 
No, I, he is a remarkable man. He has set something like twenty-seven world records. He has actually summited Mount Everest in just a pair of boots and shorts. I have heard of that guy. I didn't know his name, but I remember that story. Yeah. Where he, yeah, he's got a book out, and his whole thing is like uh, he's got a he's got a tragic motivation. His uh, back in the early nineties, his wife committed suicide, unfortunately, and I left him with four children. And so and he just created his life mission, mission after the kids were out of the house to help people with depression and keep their mental health sane. And he go he climbs Mount Kilimanjaro every year. He, count, he climbs Mount St. Helen all the time, or not Mount St. Helen, but any major rock or a major mountain that requires a lot of strength. But he teaches people how to use mind over matter. And you'll see, I've seen some pictures where there's people in their 60s, 70s year old, just in either barefoot, just shorts, climbing up these top of these mountains and just living life for the fullest and it's like it's remarkable now he uh he's got a book he's got some tutorials out there on how he has perfected his breathing regimen so this way you can able to sustain it it's like i know during what i'm driving i do this most of the time when i'm driving because like i'm the only one there it's kind of embarrassing when you're doing around people because like what is this guy doing? But when you're by yourself, it's like you do that and you focus on it and it creates, when you're doing it right, it creates a sense of euphoria. And it's like, and each time you do it, it takes a little bit longer to achieve it, a little bit longer to achieve it. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to the country time and when, you're, when, when your beard or your face is red and you've got uh, ice dripping down your beard because of the condensation, because it's 13 below outside, it comes in handy. It comes mm-hmm. in handy. It, is, it does definitely uh, toughen you up a little bit. I know one of the hunts I did back when I was probably about 19 years old. Okay. I wanted to challenge myself. I've always been into challenging myself. I gotcha. And it was uh, 46 below. Holy I, cow. I went out hunting. It was after gun season. It's in December. Negative mm-hmm. 46. And I had to call the guy to say, like, I'm coming out to go hunting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the landowner, he, he wanted to know if we were going to be out there. Yeah. So I called him up. And I said, I'm going to I'm going to come out. I'm going to go bow hunt tonight. And he goes, you know, it's negative 46. And I said, yeah, I think I can I think I can handle it. Uh, that night, I passed up a couple does. Okay. I passed up a small six that I grunted in. Mm-hmm. But I had to stop grunting because my grunt tube froze up. Um. In order to get my grunt tube, I had to take the glove off my left hand to reach down into my coat to grab it. Uh-huh. And then I went to go grab my bow, and I must have had a little bit of sweat on my hands because, you know, I had hot hands on, so your hands sweat a little bit. Mm-hmm. went to grab my bow, and the sweat on my hands froze to my bow. I was able to peel it off a little bit. I mean, I didn't take any skin off. Okay. I could definitely feel my hands sticking to my bow more than what it normally does. Um I didn't come out of the hunt, but honestly, looking back now at, at 34 years old, one of the most memorable hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the ideas that I have about about hunting come from um, another passion I have in the fire department. Um, I'm a, a assistant chief of a local volunteer fire department. Okay. And a lot of times, you know, you have to basically suck it up and go to work. True. Um, so when it's when it's cold out and you don't want to get out of bed suck it up and get out of bed because sure because that's that's what you're you're meant to do um and that's why you know it's, it's easy for me to get up early in the morning to go to go hunting to go help friends out to go run fire calls 
Um, I know that's that. It's what I'm here on this earth to do. So I'm going to continue to do it, and if and I'll do everything in my in my world to be able to hunt, fish, uh, go on calls with the fire department to help my family, be with my family. Mm-hmm. That's all I want to do in life. So I don't. I don't blame you there, man. That's that's a pretty true passion right there. My minimal vulnerable hunt is uh, I shot a doe several years ago. It's actually up on my Instagram page. And it was negative 13 degrees at sunrise. At the, and it didn't get much, we got at noon was zero degrees, but I shot my doe opening morning and I, it was picture perfect, 30 yards out. This is the time I was still gun hunting. So I had a uh, bolt action, Mossberg, 12 gauge slug, popped right in there, open sights, no iron sights. It's just, it's just it's like you got a little beat on it. The gun was made back in 1960. Boy, it, it kicked like a mule. It was designed for turkey hunt. But I, that's what I used for hunting. But she came in, it was from a drive, and I shot the doe and I saw her that morning, and, but she spotted me, cause it's like, but it's like, I, I had a, kind of like a little vendetta for her, but I sat out there, waited for her, and it's like I sat next to a tree. She got right in my line of sight, reared right up, dropped over, it's like a perfect heart shot. You can't ask for a better kill than that. And then as we're caping her, we end up coming across where somebody shot her in the hind corner, and it's like, so all that meat's gone. It's like, oh. really? But it's like, but she had so much fat on her. Like you can definitely tell she was a six-year-old mature doe. Now, when I go doe hunting, I keep a good inventory of the does that I have on there. And it, now for those who are starting out hunting, it takes some time, but study pictures. Go on Instagram, go on Facebook, whatever, and start looking at different does. So this way you get your mindset set up, like looking at different key features in their neck, their legs, their thighs, and seeing those things for things like today when I was coming to see you, I, right when I pulled down his lane, I had a mature doe, probably five years old, and off to, on my right. And then on my left, about 70 yards out, I had a younger doe. Now, you can definitely tell in silhouette, it just, now, mind you, this all comes through practice and staring at deer. It's like, I was out deer hunting with my dad at the age of 12, watching these uh, just out there with the binos. Now, I couldn't go hunting when they're, they're, they're uh, deer camp because I wasn't old enough. Because it's like, if you're hunting with us, you got to at least be able to drink. Mm-hmm. Well, I finally got the age and everybody's too old. <laughs> yeah, the one, with doe's, I always look at how long their nose is. It's really easy if you got a bunch of them okay. to pick out the adult does. Really? Um, Learn but, something new, guys. <laughs> but it's really hard at your, you know, your uh, doe that's a hundred yards away, and it's just one mm-hmm. because True. you're looking at it through binoculars, and you're like, is that a long nose or not? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the different ways I've learned and I've heard on other reading or other podcasts and if you look at like you know uh, it's hard to tell on on the racks on the wall but the proportion of from their eye to their nose okay is similar from their eye to the tip of their ear interesting so so, you know the the, if you look at the uh, buck on the right there I'll take pictures of this guy so you see what I'm looking mm-hmm. at. So yes, I see the because the nice thing is I got a good profile view yeah. of the, the the ear fully drawn back and then the, the nice picture of the nose. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, especially when they have their ears in their I guess relaxed position. Okay. I guess we would call we would call it their more normal position. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way you can tell a uh, uh, immature doe is that their nose is going to be shorter. That's one of the signs I look at okay but like I said I'm not perfect 
Yeah. Neither one of us have seen that 200 yard doe looking at him like, yep, that's an adult doe. I will, I'm telling you, I will shoot any adult doe I can uh-huh. any time of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think about it a little bit when it gets towards end of October, early November. Do I really want to shoot that doe? Because, <laughs> because here's the thing you shoot that doe, your hunt's over with. That buck that was chasing that doe has probably heard you and is gone. So you got to kind of like play the good with the bad. True. Early season or late season, no matter if I have firearm season or, or, or bow season, if I got an adult doe in front of me, mm-hmm. I'm going to take that adult doe because, you know, like I said before, we eat a lot of venison. Mm-hmm. It's definitely going to go to a good place. I want to, you know, this year I've, I've gotten into smoking venison quite a bit. So a lot of times, depending on how you smoke it, is how you have it cut. Okay. So you got to kind of plan ahead when you when you're fixing up the when you're when you're dressing the deer and and, and cutting it up. How am I going to use these cuts of meat? Mm-hmm. Um, I've made uh, prime rib out of uh, venison hindquarter. Okay. Which is some of the best venison I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. It's delicious. Um, you know, we've definitely we've made summer sausage. I'm gonna make brats this fall. My goal, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's it's definitely I I love you know I'm yeah everybody likes to shoot big bucks and that's great. I just I just like hunting anything. I went dove hunting for the first time uh, on Sunday. Oh yeah, so that I was, saw that it opened up and it's like I have I have literally almost 140 rounds of shotgun ammo in my. In my container, and it's like I want to go shoot it. I got so many of them. That I got to, those who are gun nuts. I got eleven hundred Remington, and those are just a beautiful firearm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, and then this started. This was built back in I think it was the eighties or seventies. I'm not. Don't quote me on the the time frame, but it's that particular model still in production today because it is such yes. a smooth firearm. I actually uh, I have a uh, Spartan twenty gauge over and under is what I use. Okay. Um, we actually went just down from the house where the cell phone towers are. I gotcha. And uh, we see them all the time over there. We ended up, we, we ended up getting one. I took the dog out with me. First time I ever had a dog hunting since I was about fourteen years old. How was old. that experience? Um, it actually went really well. I mean, I, granted, I'm a whitetail hunter, not a dove hunter. So True. I, I probably, if, if a dove hunter came to watch me, they'd be shaking their head. So, but I was wondering, curious, how did Ruby? T- you know, was this the first time she heard a gun go off? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, she's heard fireworks. We had her at 4th of July this last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she, ne- she didn't pay no attention to it. So she didn't mind. Because I know that's a tricky thing. Because I, when I got to, I have a dog myself. And she's, when I first got her, she was two years old. Now she's has eight more years on her. And I was hoping to maybe turn into a squirrel dog because I, I, I'll tease her with my squirrel call. I'll bark at her real quick. And her ears just perk up. It's like, let's go. So I tried taking her on a squirrel hunt with a 22. And it's like, even with the, the light of caliber that is, it, she, she would just beeline. It's like, all right, yeah. this is. She, or I'd have her on the leash just to try and see what she'd react to. It, and she just, she'd go to the very edge of it. It's like, all right, well, that's done with it. So like, instead of walking around, let's just pull you out of here and let's go back home. Yeah. Um, we had gotten Ruby from a, a breeder in the area here. Uh, that is a big duck hunter. Okay. Uh, he, when we went to his place to to take a look at her, his walls are just covered in ducks and mm-hmm. huge bucks. <laughs> um, so we, we knew we were getting a, a a dog from a duck hunting family, mm-hmm. but uh, you know we took her out and I ended up getting I got one dove, uh, but uh, uh, you know yeah she didn't really have any ill effects from the gunshots yeah. that I had on her. Um, 
you know, I probably maybe this weekend get out again and try again. It was kind of a crummy, it was kind of rainy and we were yeah, sitting out of the rain a little bit. And I had, mm-hmm. I had my uh, seven year old son with me. So he was, we uh, went out there and, and sat in some chairs and some grass and, mm-hmm. you know, waiting for doves to fly by. So like I say, any, any dove hunters out there that can give me a hint, that'd be, that'd be uh, a big help. But I've, I've read on, uh, the night before I found out that the uh, season had started and it was funny because I was on uh, Hank Shaw's website Hunt, Gather, Cook Okay. and he had a dove recipe on there Yeah. and uh, you know me and, me and my wife here were, were really into trying different things and uh-huh. my wife's like I like to hunt, my wife loves to cook oh good so combination we do have a very good combination we do like to try mm-hmm. different things um, she's, she doesn't know it yet but she's going to try deer tongue this year that's really good. It tastes literally like sirloin to me. I actually had it last year, or two yeah. years ago. I had, I had two tongues, and I prepared them in two different ways, and it is very delicious. How do you do your tongue? So you, you had that membrane you had to take off of it. Now, the first time I did it, I just left it on there, and I grilled it up, cut it up, and put some Lowry Spice on it, threw it in the grill, and it, it's like... Everybody else, like my dad didn't care for it because it was a little chewy for him, but it, it, I thought, it, to me, it reminded me of sirloin steak. Mm-hmm. Now, the other one I took and I boiled it, then I took the membrane off of it, then I grilled it up again, and that was just as good. But that one, since it, since it kind of takes, I'm not sure if the membrane's kind of fatty or whatever, but it kind of takes that, that uh, elasticity off of it. Mm-hmm. I think what I could do next time is maybe saturate it in some olive oil, or maybe, not olive oil, but soy sauce. And, and just kind of uh, saute it in that real quick, you know, because it's, it's already cooked, you know, because you boiled it. Now it just kind of puts some flavor to it. That's the only thing that was really missing the second time around. Yeah, I was talking when uh, Steve Ranella, Mm-hmm. came into town that was the one question I had because all he talks talks about on the podcast how, how good deer tongue is yeah and you know I went up to him and and, and you know I wish I wish my life could, I, I enjoy the way how he runs how he does things he, mm-hmm. he hunts a lot he's a good family man and, and he likes to eat different things mm-hmm. and I asked him how how to prepare deer tongue to get other people to like it okay so he told me he goes boil it peel the skin off cube it up and put that on a salad you can feed that to your mother-in-law <laughs> he goes it'll taste just like ham oh okay so then again like, everybody's taste buds are different but that's a good way that's a really brilliant way to approach it my sister hates venison and i've gotten her so many times like i'll make chili I'll make sloppy joes and it's like oh it's a great hamburger isn't it it's like and after she had like her second or third plate it's like you're gonna eat venison the entire time it's like and she the look on her face would just kill me if it, if, if it was if it was a, you know, and she, but it's it's one of those things where they have some people have a misconceived per, perception of how meat tastes but it's like I hunt because of that flavor mm-hmm. this past weekend I had my last piece of tenderloin and I, when I started my brine on Friday and I brined it all day Friday and then into, and then uh, all day Saturday and then about four o'clock I switched over to a marinade so what I did is I used Worcestershire sauce, soy sauce, and then I used sriracha. Mixed all around there, and, and then marinated that for another 24 hours. Then I slow, then I grilled it to medium rare, good 155 degrees in the center, but everything else was right where I wanted it to be. But then I paired it up with pesto. Really? And the, the combination of all of that, to me, it tastes like a, a really good barbecue, which is weird. But that's that it's me, and it's. But I, what I use is I use this uh, smoky flavor grill rub that I picked up from Gander Outdoors. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll send you a picture of it. But it turned out to have such a delicious flavor. But 
both my fiance and I ate everything. We had nothing left on our plates. Everything was gone. Wow. And she was complaining, was like, oh, you put too much pesto on there. And it's like, I look at her plate, it's like cleaned off. <laughs> that's, I always, that's always nice when you have like, uh, you know, company coming over. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, like a lot of our friends, you know, I, they, they'll come over and they know something that they're going to be eating is wild. Yeah. You know, we may have, uh, you know, deep fried bluegill or mm -hmm. some walleyes. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't mind trying uh, pickling some northern. Uh, we got into some northern a couple weeks ago, but I ended up flaying it up for the, uh, you know, put it in a deep fryer. We do, you know, foil packets on the grill with it too. I got gotcha. you. Um, I wouldn't mind toying this winter if we get a couple northerns ice fishing of. of well, you just see this past this past spring, I pulled up some pretty big size uh, pike just right over there in Brownsville. I ended up pulling uh, three twenty seven inches out of there and a thirty inch. Now the friend I was fishing with, he pulled up a thirty six and a half inch pike and a thirty four and a half inch pike, and then a bunch of twenty seven. 20, and we were just we were just hammering. But then as this summer went forward. We started seeing less than that because I think it got too warm for them. The spawning was over. They went down the main channel, but we were hammering apart. This, this, uh, we'll go out ice fishing. We'll, we'll, we'll push out some right. pike. Now, there's a really unique way of filleting pike. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good haul right there. Yeah. That's one that's about two hours. Oh. We threw a couple of them back. That was a couple weeks ago where we got a picture of, uh, a couple northerns that my son and my father we went out at mm -hmm. one afternoon and caught. We caught those. That was a Wednesday. The Saturday we went right back out and caught a couple more. Um, so it is definitely uh, that's thirty-seven inch right there. I was telling you about. That's a monster. We end up we end up throwing them back because it's like it's like he's at the point time where it's like let him grow. He could probably turn into a nice trophy. I was talking to my dad because he loves fishing for pike, and his biggest fish he caught forty-eight inch pike over Lake Okoboji uh, last fall was two falls ago, but he was on six-pound test and a 716 jig that's it really? oh yeah and he gives me grief all the time it's like i caught a pike or caught a perch here a couple uh followers days ago and i had it in the boat and all of a sudden looked out it's like he just kind of like you know that pike i caught in that six pound test you should be able to, you should be able to match me with that <laughs> it's fun it's because we uh him and i get pretty competitive he loves fishing he uh just went up fishing two week or two weekends ago up up north and then they're doing a Okaboji trip in the first week of October. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I want to go to do this year, but it also fell on the same weekend I do an event called Stand Down. It's down there in Peoria, Illinois. And what it is is the facility, Goodwill gets, gets a bunch of uh, donations from around the community, and they put on an event for the homeless, for the veteran homeless there. And every year they've been doing it, but this is, the, I believe it's their 10th year, but it's been growing and growing and growing and growing. And it's just to give back to the community. And we serviced last year like 275, 285 veterans, homeless vets, wow, from ranging from Korean all the way up to uh, Iraqi freedom. Holy man. Yeah, it's in because down there they don't have all they don't have enough warm places for them, and it still gets mm -hmm. cold. And they they pull from a five county region to be able to bring. They bust them all in too. We feed them, we give them food vouchers, we give them bus vouchers, we give them boots, we give them coats, we give them a hot hands. We make sure they're they're able to survive the winter, at least try to, you know, and for the ones that don't, aren't able to find shelter. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you to do that. That's, yeah, this is my third year doing it. Easy. 
it's it, a nice thing. It's like uh, uh, my uh, fiance's, uh, my future mother-in-law, she's been put on this event for years and this is her bread and butter. It's like the day it ends, she's right back at it. <laughs> You know, and, and she she works with Bass Pro Shop, Gander Outdoors, uh, Caterpillar, a bunch of different other community offerings, and the the local uh, uh, B League team don't allows them to use their stadium as a assembly line for all the veterans to come through. And it's like the first year I did it, it's like what really sunk into me is that I was able to help like five or six veterans personally. I mean, I started from square one all the way through the end because they got there right at the very end. And so we're, they're, they're unfortunately we're picking up scraps, but there's one guy that just got out of work and it's like, and he's homeless and it's like, he had all the stuff stolen. So it's like, it was just like, we're get extra socks. You get extra, you get extra um, flannels and stuff like that. And it, unfortunately we didn't have any boots for him, but we, we try to take care of him as much as possible. That's really cool. I mean, I know we've done uh, some different things through my, through my day job, I believe. Uh, donated to uh, different organizations that handed, especially in the wintertime, mm-hmm. coats, uh, flannel shirts, hooded sweatshirts, um, big thick socks, uh, boots, and, and that, and donated them to, to the local uh, uh, program here in La Crosse area, mm-hmm. where, they, where they've done that and, and handed them all out. And, you know, it's amazing how uh, the, the, how much people care about, you know, our veterans that come back from battle mm-hmm. and that they have such a hard time finding uh, a job, a place, or even just to assimilate back into a society that's not, uh, you know, at war. You know, it's, it's, it definitely can't be can't be easy. My hats off to it. One of my biggest regrets is not joining the military. I gotcha. If I could have gone back myself at 18 years old, I would have said, "Do your service, join the military." I mean, 18 years old, I joined the fire department. But, so you still serve in the country in one yeah. way or another, but I would have, I would have obviously, I, you know, as, as much as I've learned about the military in my day job and 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 extracurricular working with them, I, I wish I would have gone back into the military. I, I think I would have done really well in the military. Mm-hmm. My mindset that I have, and and uh, I would, I think I would have enjoyed it. I, I thought about joining the military when I had the chance, but uh, this was two thousand three when we both graduated, which we were the same age, so. Mm-hmm. We would have been going right over to the thick of things yeah. at the time, but I have bad knees. And then I have what to call a hemangioma in my right hand. And as you can tell, it's pretty swollen this, this last couple of days, but it's one thing that helped me from service. So when I came across the company we both work for right now, it, it just made sense. And so being able to work with these veterans from all across the country and providing them a solution, it's, it's, a, it's a great rewarding experience. Now, it's we do our best, but at least it's an extra solution. It's an extra... Um, tool in their toolbox to help them get the benefits they need, get the understanding they want, and get the assistance they, they need to, to maintain their lifestyle, mm-hmm. or at least to survive in some cases. Yeah, ab- absolutely correct. I mean, we need to, uh, you know, it's, it's you got to support our troops, and it's a little bit more than just putting a bumper sticker on the back of your truck. That's you very true. Yeah. That's why I um, use this. That's why um, I, I shoot veteran um, innovative products. And these guys, a veteran-owned company, all American made. I mean, every single part's made in America. But the owner of the company takes veterans out to hunting all across the country. And he donates time. He donates energy. It's he's a very humble, humble man. Served our country as well, and uh, he's he's going to be on the podcast in the future. But uh, he is a uh, an inspiration because he's he took this company going from trade show to trade show. Now his broadheads can be found in Walmart. And still, everything is made in America. No Chinese steel at all. 
And the funny unique thing is, like I was telling you earlier, it's assembled, it's assembled here in Wisconsin, which is great. So it's like he's he's keeping taxes in the in the, in the community. He's making sure everybody has a job. It's like it's opening up new opportunities. Good things are happening for people like that. And it's like and those who are looking to help out veterans that it's like take them out hunting because you can see the look in their eyes and the excitement because they may not even have to harvest anything but being able to be included on something a deer drive or just walking out scouting it could it could brighten up their day because it's the the trauma that go they go through and when they come through back through a a a peaceful area it's it's a struggle for them because i have several friends of my own that have uh gone overseas and fought i have uh, my grandpa, my most recent grandpa that passed away, he was in the missile guidance system. He was still in the cavalry when the cavalry was still around back in the 50s. I have an uncle that was in the Vietnam War that's going through Agent Orange issue right now. I had a grandpa that was uh, came back from Korea, and that was hard on him. He, he unfortunately passed away, but uh, you know that was hard for him because it's like he didn't know how to express it or talk it out. And it's like I hear some stories. I'm not going to get into it, but. It's 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 struggle. Everybody everybody gets affected differently. And I met a chaplain here last year when I first started working for LHI, and they came to Port McCoy to tr to go over suicide prevention because they were finding that out east they had multiple um, service members that didn't go overseas but still committed suicide because they, they felt the guilt of not going over there and it's like sometimes your MOS changes it's like the government puts you where they want you and they, they put you in the best situation for you to make them better yeah uh, that's I, I couldn't imagine the amount of stress and then even just the stress that their families go through as well mm -hmm. um, you know missing them oh yeah you know, you're, you're, you know you miss your loved ones when they're overseas I mean, we get it here in the you here in the house too. I mean, recently I've been uh, with the amount of rain that we've had in the area. Mm -hmm. I've been kind of AWOL from the house. I got you. Um, what have you been doing? Uh, we ran um, Monday night or early Tuesday morning at about twelve fifteen. We ran calls all the way until uh, Tuesday late morning. Okay. Um, came home, slept for a couple hours. Went back to the station, helped out with cleanup mm -hmm. of the station. A lot of our gear we rescued uh, overnight. We rescued two people out of their house, out of their homes uh, yeah. with a, basically rescue swimmers in a boat. Okay. Um, we had we had evacuated area and we had a lot of power lines down, roads collapsed, mm -hmm. and that. And uh, we had uh, the Tuesday afternoon we ran a couple calls. Uh, we did have a crew uh, guys go down to an area and help clean up there. And you're, you know, we're doing a lot of now. It's kind of the the non glamorous stuff that uh, uh, fire departments where we're filling out paperwork and mm -hmm. running reports yeah. and going to meetings with the town board. And last night I was at the town board meeting for two hours discussing the flood that we had. Mm -hmm. um, uh, interviews with the local news stations, uh, radio news, weather channel, that sort of thing um, that we've had to do in the last couple of days. So I mean, we've you know in the last week. You know, we put in a little bit more time uh, outside of the house, and then also, uh, you know, like I said, next Saturday we'll be going bow hunting. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you're also that's in the back of your mind too, because you know you're working all doing all this stuff during the day, and then you get the fire department, and then I bow hunt probably more than the average person. Yeah. So I mean, making sure that stuff is squared away at home 
is you know a priority of mine. Uh-huh. Happy uh, wife, happy life. And the truth, exactly. I got lucky. My fiance hunts with me, so it's like. I'm, but I learned from my previous relationship: don't buy her the bow. Make her buy the bow. Let her gain the appreciation that you have for bow hunting. So, so I guess great. So it's like we can sit next to each other for eight to twelve hours without say a word. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> it is definitely. My wife doesn't hunt. She's come out with me. Mm-hmm. Um, she said she helped me if I needed to like drag a deer out or something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, she likes being outside. But I don't know. I think I'm. I think I'm just a little too uh, intense when I go. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> that. Uh, but uh, um, you know, she enjoys like helping me out if I had to cut up cut up a deer. She's helped me do that. My son now helps me helps me cut up deer. He enjoys doing that. He enjoys all the outdoor. You know, anything, any type of hunting or fishing he asks me to do, it's always yes. Yeah. It might not be right away, but you know, he was. I told him, "Hey, dove hunting starts tomorrow." Yeah, you want to go? You want to go? Yep, I want to go. Or these archery shoots that that we've gone to about a half dozen. This yeah, summer. he showed me a show trophy. That's pretty impressive. He's got he got quite the uh, shooter here pretty soon as he gets better as he yeah. gets older. Every, every day after school now, he's in the backyard shooting his bow. I get mm-hmm. done with work, I'm shooting my bow with him. It's helping me out too. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll go, you know, walking in the woods back here, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, you know, showing he's, he's got two trail cameras in the backyard. Oh, very cool. That he runs, he does everything on the trail cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very excited. He's actually got more deer on his trail cameras than I do this year. <laughs> um, he's got a nine pointer and then a doe that we've called long tail. Okay. Because of the tail on it is abnormally long. Yeah. <laughs> so we're very original. In our naming of deer, um, but we got a niner and the long tail, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we see you know see deer in the backyard fairly often. So it is uh, nice to kind of have a, a family that has uh, similar interests. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's been an amazing last couple of years. Yeah, my daughter's five. I bought her a bow at the age of four. It was just a simple recurve, a diamond. Atomic, and it's like I couldn't pass it up. It's just too good. I, like, I spent more on the, the uh, whisker biscuit than I did on the actual bow itself. But I, we every time we like this weekend, uh, we're gonna go out shooting. It's like we we go out shooting. We want to pick her up in the morning. We'll go shooting again before we drop her off. It's just and now it's like we're we're only focusing on just putting the, an arrow in the target and then working on her footwork. And that's it. Just keep it simple because this yeah. way I don't want to overload her. But she's her grandfather hunts. An awful lot too, as well. He's he's a very successful hunter too, and but he she calls him reindeer now. As as it, it's cute now, and as it gets older, but she was one. She watched me cape my buck this year, and she watched me do all that fun stuff, and so and I wanted to experience it. And it's like her mom and I had a conversation about it. It's like, what do we want to introduce her to? It's like, no, I don't think we we didn't have a really problem with it. So it's like neither one of us did. It's like there she is, and and she loves eating. We, as soon as she got teeth, we started putting deer in her mouth. We put pheasant and rabbit and everything that she liked. You know, and she's got a real sensitive tongue, so I got to watch the seasoning. But you know, it's really good to have that. So this way, then she does like too salty, too spicy, whatever else. And in, in her in her minds of being too spicy, it's too much pepper. It's like, all right, well, we can change the next one. Yeah, we actually uh, two years ago, I had my son Henry, he's six years old. Mm-hmm. We had him in a. Uh, we have a lot of where my family owns some land. We have tree stands. We'll have a ladder stand and then a clamp-on stand right next to it. Okay. And uh, I was in the clamp-on stand and Henry's in the ladder stand. And that, it was kind of one of the first years he was going to hunt with me mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more. He's been, he's, 
the first he was three years old the first time he ever sat in a ground blind with uh-huh. me. I'm not a big ground blind guy. Okay. I feel like I get I get blinded. I can't look around enough, so I'm, I'm a big tree stand guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had him in the tree stand with me, and I told him, I go, okay, any deer you want me to shoot, I'll shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've kind of been, you know, in the last couple of years holding out for, for the more mature bucks. It lets me go hunting longer because they're harder to get. True. But I go, any deer you want me to shoot, I'll shoot. Mm-hmm. And we're the... Uh, we're hunting in a tree stand. My sister did the same thing with her uh, son, too. Oh, she hunts uh, yep. regularly, too, as well. Yep, my sister hunts, too. Um, the She shot a six-pointer with her son. Oh, that's impressive. That same year, out of the same tree stand, a week before I shot a six-pointer out of that same tree stand. And, we, and I took the, the skull mount, and it's up in my son's bedroom. That's... So then the next day at school, mm-hmm. he shows up and he's got this picture in his hand. He wanted to show everybody <laughs> at school this mucky shot. Yeah. But his teacher, you know, said, did he actually shoot that deer? And I'm like, no, I, I got the deer. He was with me. Mm-hmm. But, like, I got I got the deer. So Well, I mean, this I, year he can do it because after they passed that law this yeah. past year, you can, be as a, you can be an infant and go out hunting, which is – but what it allows us to do, with what the Governor Walker did, is it allows the parents to control when they introduce hunting to, to the uh, – to their, to their family, which I think is a very smart idea to do. I mean, granted, some people think it's a little undamaged, but nobody's going to take an infant out of the field. It's just that it's like now when, you, when they're at five, six, seven, eight years old, get them experience to it. Now they can use a crossbow or a firearm or whatever. I, for myself, I'm, I'm she's going to shoot a bow. She, it's like she, she's got good working shoulders, good elbows. Like, shoot the bow until your elbow gives out. So Yeah, that's kind of the same thing here. I, You know, we, we shoot a lot of compound bow, and I always kind of said, I go, no. He's he's he'll be eight in December, and you know I'm just gonna once I feel that he can handle just about everything. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I'll I'll let him come out with me. Um, you know, it, it is kind of hard to to think that like a six seven year old. You know, you're you're hunting in a tree. You know, you still want to have that person right next to him. Yeah. To to help him out. Um, but like say when I was when I was twelve. You know, we kind of, me and my dad hunted together, and it mm-hmm. was, okay, here's your stand. He walked another, you know, 200 yards down the logging row, and that's where he stood. Uh-huh. And we had a, uh, had, you know, you clapped three times, because I can't whistle. Okay. You want to think about me. All right. <laughs> so, I clapped three times, and that was the sign that said, I need help. Mm-hmm. I can't figure out, but, you know, the only time I really clapped is when I got my foot stuck in a trailhawk climber oh. halfway up the tree as I was coming down at the end of the night and I clapped and he was already coming back already but mm-hmm. I mean it's it's making sure that your your child is safe they're ethical and make sure that they're having fun I mean yeah. if they're not gonna have fun you know I took I took Henry out when he was really young and if we he was getting cold okay you know I a couple years ago I took him out turkey hunting mm-hmm. I'm not a great turkey hunter neither am I and I it was early in the morning, and it was like that time. Mm-hmm. We didn't hear too many turkey gobbles. Turkey gobbles. I don't call. I'm kind of one of those silent guys. Mm-hmm. I'll put a decoy out. I'm getting better at calling because I have a little bit longer commute in my uh, ride to work, so I do a ah. lot of turkey calling on the way there. So do you use a diaphragm or do you use slate? I use a diaphragm. See, I, I have a diaphragm myself. I'm not very good at it. Now, I have a little squawk box, and that's garbage. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
Jack from the Axe Outdoors, he was telling me he's like he's successful every season, but he uses slates. And it's just like, don't worry, it's like this because it's fall where where he, he just gained permission into some a private land just over by Stoddard, and we're gonna go. Out, I'm, like, I'm gonna get you on a turkey. And it's like, well, this will be. It's like I haven't been able to do it. I'm still learning how to do it because all last season when I was out hunting, all I did was listen to my put my headphones in and just listen to how they call. It's this way, like listening to what not to do, and then it's like I, I got to one point where I got to, I got two of them talking to me, but that was it. Yeah. They were like, hey, was, to me that's a success because it's more than I did the last year before and the season before that. Yeah. The uh, first time I went turkey hunting was by myself. I'm like, man, never grew up in a turkey. We were 100 percent whitetail. Yeah, same with me. All uh, whitetail only. I remember we had the I had the conversation when I was 14 years old. We can do ducks or we can do deer. Okay. And I said. Let's do deer because I think they taste better. <laughs> uh, so we did, ended up doing ended up doing deer. So I got about twenty two years old. Said I'm going to start doing more different type of hunting. Okay. I'm going to go different types of fishing. You know, I got a, got a fly rod. I fly fish now. Mm-hmm. I went turkey hunting. The first morning I went turkey hunting, I called in a tom mm-hmm. to about fifty yards. Okay. And then I barely breathed the wrong way. And that turkey ran off. And after that, I'm like, "Cool, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. so, their eyesight's three times better than we are. Yeah. Than ours. So it's like, just think of it. That's, when you look at your scope or look at the binoculars, you turn into three powers. Like, wow, that's really impressive. It's like, you, that's why you're hunting on the ground. You got to be in the ground blind. It's like, I, I've been setting open, like setting in, in some trees and stuff like that. But it's like, I think I'm going to have to break down and develop a ground blind this way I can successfully draw back and mm-hmm. put an arrow in it. You're going to archery hunt? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, I would, yeah, if I, if I was, I use a shotgun. If I was going to mm-hmm. use, go turkey hunt with a bow, yeah, I definitely. See, my, my schedule's so busy. I, I'm, a, I always have something going on. And so for me, bow hunting is more optimal for me. Granted, it's a little bit more hard of a challenge, but I can spend, I can start from, uh, the end of April all the way up until Memorial Day and it, it May 31st still hunt I mean that's that's two months hunt time it's like why not why not yeah it's like the old lady loves to hunt with me too so it's like we'll go out there and we'll still sit in some place I'll sit in another one and I'll sit there and call because I, I feel I'm a little bit more better caller but it's like that's just because we only have one call yeah so now it's like now we're going to I'm being around people that do it better than that I can I'll just learn from them yeah I mean I'm, I'm average I went this last year turkey season I took two days off of work hunted all day Thursday Friday mm-hmm. and then Saturday morning I had something going on I couldn't go I went ended up going Saturday evening and then Sunday I wasn't going to go mm-hmm. I was going to stick around the house and then finally I'm just like midday I'm like I gotta go off mm-hmm. I'm gonna go off yeah I ended up having um, three hens walk probably about 10 feet in front of me Okay. I was in the tall grass. None of I didn't have this any spring or fall. This is last spring. Spring. Okay, so it's only toms only. I yep. gotcha. So, the only turkey I saw during my turkey season, or only tom I saw, excuse me, was standing right on the deck next to the grill, and the turkey was back over there, about sixty yards away, just outside of the yard. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I, and I, I see it walking through the woods. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I walk into the house, grab the binoculars on the windowsill. Yeah. Look outside. And I'm like, that's a Tom. Oh, my God. <laughs> and here, you know, my wife and kid are like, are you going to go shoot it? And I'm like, 
by the time no I'm not it wins the turkey won this last spring yeah <laughs> so tag soup it's like I've, I've, I've drank I've had tag soup for every season so hopefully this season I'll be able to put a fan on the wall because it's it'd just be fun because it's just so beautiful mm-hmm. it's like I thought it's like I, I thought about doing a full mount on turkey but it's like eh, you know I can do the fan mount myself yeah fan mounts are pretty fairly easy mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we ended up uh, I've, I've had we've done turkey breasts before we've gotten turkeys from friends of ours okay it's one nice part about when you when you have the ability to do a lot of archery hunting is trading with other guys oh yeah you know you like you end up giving them you know hey do you got any venison like, yeah here's a hunk of backstrap or something like that then a month later a guy you're, you're pretty jealous of the backstrap they better be pretty good meat there <laughs> you know what i i've gotten to the point where like if somebody wants backstrap, like yeah, go ahead. Okay. And I know a lot of people be like that's the best cut of meat, but I, I one of my most one of my the meal I love the most out of venison. What's that? Is a it's called a blade roast. If you go on to YouTube and uh, it's a or on Steve Ranella's YouTube page. Okay. If you go on there and. Google Blade or not Google search because it's not a Google website. You would <laughs> search Blade Roast. He takes a pretty much the front shoulder, okay. some of the silver skin and the gristle off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, gets a cast iron pot, fries, you know, browns all the edges, okay, and then puts it in the pot with like I we use beef stock or game stock or whatever, mm-hmm. and then close it up and put it in the oven for a couple hours, okay, and then. You uh, um, then you'll put like your veggies in for like the mm-hmm. last like forty five minutes or something like that. And there's go, go on and search this. I'm gross simplification of what this whole process yeah. is, but uh, man, that thing. I, is I have super, a roast. I have a roast a lot over, so I might I might look that up and check that out because I get my uh, dad gave me a bunch of cast iron, so I'm gonna have to check that out. It's so good. I mean, even like and you and you you pull the front. We use the front shoulder. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they use in the recipe because I had I had a front shoulder here, and uh, you take that sh- bone and it just peels like that could go in a museum. That bone is so clean because all mm-hmm. the meat peeled off. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know that was so good. You know we we ended up being we ended up making uh, Philly cheesesteaks on it the next day. Oh yum! Make, yeah, and then we ended up making you know we'll we'll, we'll make it into soups or stews or have whole meat chili made and all that stuff. So I mean like. Uh, when I say we eat a lot of venison, yeah, we, I, I understand. We do a lot of it. I have a I have a cut at home. It's it's because the, the deer at my dad's house, is, the deer's neck was so massive because it's pre rut, and so I was able to get this beautiful cut of meat. It looks like a, I call it the London broil cut, mm-hmm. and it's just absolutely massive. And he has rotisserie, so we're we're gonna, we're going to do that for one of our holiday meals. And we're gonna put on rotisserie and we're gonna try it out. That'd be cool. Oh yeah, the, the, the trick is is like I now I don't know if you brine it because I like to brine all the I like to put water salt put a little bit of that in there and I like to brine it for upwards of thirty hours or more because I found that's how I've gotten a lot of people that don't like venison to really enjoy it mm-hmm. and it, for me it's like I still get the gamey flavor but for those who have never tried it it's a good way of introducing it to them. There's a guy that we work that we work with that he absolutely hates venison. He came to one of my cookouts. And he loved it. He had so many shish kebabs. It's great. And my shish kebab recipe got uh, um, featured in DearRecipe.com on, on her blog. Her name's Amanda Payne. She's a really sweet woman. She 
lives in Kentucky or no Virginia I think or Carolina she lives out east but she's a really great great person beautiful personality and, and we've been talking to each other and stuff like that and how to boast, boost our own brand recognition and she was telling me about what and I gave her some in, insight for me and it's like I told her it's like and she asked me like three weeks prior to this recipe like what I was gonna do it's like I was gonna I wanted to create something that was original that at least to me at least because there's probably some very it's all cooking is a, a flattery of something else but she didn't have someone like this and it was very basic ingredients and very simple instruction that she was able to and she wrote a beautiful article on the whole process I'll forward you a link to it and I sent to everybody that mattered to the the, the link because it's like this is delicious because I used uh um, we can we can elaborate that later on, but yeah. Very cool. You get into eating deer heart at all? I do. I love deer heart. Yeah. I love eating deer heart. Every every year, every time I get a deer heart, I always do something different with it. Uh, but for my one of my favorite one is putting a little uh, uh, butter and then a little bit of um, Worcestershire sauce or, or soy sauce and frying them up in a little pan. Absolutely There's, delicious. We got a recipe that's that's very similar to that, and that's that's our Thanksgiving. Like appetizer. Oh, it's a good you choice. Have deer heart because you know, obviously Thanksgiving is right. Wisconsin's got deer season at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, the the two deer I shot during gun season. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've gotten a little bit too good at anatomy <laughs> of a whitetail. That's something that I've worked on the last year was really concentrating on the anatomy of where the heart is. Mm-hmm. I both deer I shot shot right through the heart. Oh, there goes the appetizer. Yeah, so basically I remember sending a picture to my wife and here's a heart with a big bullet hole through the center <laughs> of it. And I said, no heart for Thanksgiving this year. So, yeah. <laughs> at least my aim is very true. But I mean, these weren't too terribly far shots. That's, a, that's the one thing. I've, I've never had that opportunity to take really far shot mm-hmm. um, with, with during gun season. A lot of the hunting that I've done has been all woods. Okay. When you're looking at 60 70 yards tops that's a long shot test for um, those who are they're not don't have the wide open space because for me i mean a large i've only been shooting shotguns so it's like my max range of 60 yards mm-hmm. and then i switched to bow so that's that's that cuts it down just a little hair a bit more but i found myself to be a little bit more accurate it's like after that last season because it's like I, I was gun hunting with my friends but i brought and it's like I had a doe 40 yards out broadside and i shot it and it's like i don't know if it's like i hit her but I don't think I hit it right because mm-hmm. like I don't have a scope on it. It's all open sights. It's it's a bird gun, and I I was like I would have killed it with my bow. Yeah. And it's like I it's like it's like I'm good. I'm done. I retired the gun. I'm done with it. Yeah. We uh, growing up around in Minnesota, we had I bought a H and R twelve gauge break action. Okay. My I have an affinity for single shot. What guns? I like bolt action myself. I, I just I, I, I get a little turned on when I see a bolt action. Cause I, I hunt with a bolt action. Mm-hmm. Like that's my go-to gun. Mm-hmm. I, I just enjoy break actions. I don't. Mm-hmm. This is my. I, I don't have any reason why I do. Um, but I had that, and I had was a fully rifled barrel, twelve gauge. Okay. And I've taken a couple white tails, the longest, one of the one of probably the longest shots I've taken with that was over a hundred yards. Wow, that's so impressive with the, with the 12 gauge. Yeah, I mean, I had a scope on top of it and everything like that. And I mean, we had practiced at 100 yards. Yeah, you, you paid your dues to be able to take a shot like that. Because mm-hmm. now anybody that's listening to it, like some people might find that a little bit like why, why 100 yards of shotgun, but you have to pay your dues to be able to take an animal like that because you pull that trigger, you, the worst 
fear anybody's ever experienced is wounding an animal because I've done it myself with shotgun. It's like that's why I kind of tend to steer away from it. Now I have a uh, six, so that's why when I when I put it where I need to go, it's it, it's going down. Yeah, I, but I'm gonna try. To, I'm gonna go for the lungs, not for the heart. Yeah, exactly. I, I've contemplated on aiming just a little bit far back so I don't get too terribly close to the close to the heart and stay in the lungs a little bit. But then mm-hmm. again, you know, heart's really good to eat, but. But you also um, want to be ethical. I, I, also, I also want to be ethical, and I, you know, if you, know, you can shoot them in the heart, they're usually going to go real short. Tracking is shorter. Yes. You can go, you know, especially, you know, gun season here in Wisconsin, we've got multiple tags. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've kind of deployed a tactic of, you know, if you shoot, some of the best hunting is that opening morning. Mm-hmm. And if you have a deer that comes by right away in the morning and it's cold out, traditionally where it is, is we'll shoot. And if we can see the deer drop, we'll get out of our stand, walk over to there, field dress it, mm-hmm. and then go right back up into our tree stand. Because then we don't know if something else is going to get pushed to us. And I've shot a lot of multiple second deer in a day because I went back up in my tree stand and then was able to, uh, you know, get two deer in one day, mm-hmm. field dress them. They cool down. I mean, usually you know, 40 degrees is what we're talking about during that time of year. Oh, yes. so, so it's definitely cool. It's getting cold up. That buck on the right up there, I yeah. shot that. Mm-hmm. The evening, shot that in the evening stand at about uh, 4 p.m. Okay. That morning out of that same tree stand, I shot an adult doe out of that same tree stand. I had that drug down in a little bit of a valley, field dressed, and kind of draining out the valley probably gotcha. 30 yards below me uh-huh. so when i drug that one out i had to walk back up get my dough and drag that one back down so i had in a one day i had a big adult dough and a big 10 point buck that i drug down too so it was definitely a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of work. yeah <laughs> a lot of work too <laughs> i know i when i when i when i butchered my last year it took me 10 hours and it's like i had the because what i did is i i focused on the carcass and then my fiance she spent the time just actually taking those silver skin off pulling off lot of stuff digging out stuff that i wasn't going to put a whole lot of attention to because i was using a bigger knife she was using something a little more fine-tuned and so that's how we worked and it worked very very well she had to go in and take a nap i just stayed straight through it you know, take a nap with my little one. It's like, yeah, that's okay. Dad took a nap too. He come out every once in a while, refill my beer, and it's like, and then go back on inside because we're cold. Because it's like he, he he wanted to bring it up warmer temperatures. I told him it's like you got out when you're cleaning a deer, you want your hands to hurt. Because yeah. this way you're likely less likely to create a bloodborne pathogen or, mm-hmm. or get yourself infected. Because making sure you also have food um, grade gloves too. Because that's what I did. I, I went went through and found a place where I can get them and then I bought a big box of them so this way then I can share them for whoever wanted to help out. Yeah, it is, that, is, that is one thing that makes cutting up deer a lot easier if it's cold. Yes. It, 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 and we use, um, you know, basically I can debone a deer. I use three separate knives. Mm-hmm. I got a flay knife that I'll use mm-hmm. that's trimming fat and taking silver skin off. Yeah. Um, I'll have like a, uh, almost like a buck 110. Okay. Size knife. I don't know what what you call it. I basically I have a um, about the same, but it, it's not a folding one. It's a it's a fixed blade. Fixed blade knife. But I, I only go with fixed blade when it comes down to stuff because it's it's not that I'm I'm afraid that the the mechanism will fail on me. It's just I don't know. It's just something about it because it's like for me it's like it reminds me of traditional age because like 
folding blades have only been around for a handful of years now. I like like picture myself being 1850s with the straight with a fixed blade cutting everything up. It's when you only have one knife, so it's like you gotta be a surgeon when you're flaying everything up. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, I have I use you know in the field I have a folding folding one, mm -hmm. um, but then I have a big big boning knife that I just and that's the only things I have a specific. They don't touch anything but venison. Mm -hmm. I hide them in the mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. I think my wife may know where they're at, but <laughs> like that's all I use it for. And I just use those same three knives. And uh, um, but like yeah, I'll run with uh, you know a folding knife for doing a lot of my infield work. Um, but uh, you know you keep a sharp edge on it, mm -hmm. and then you know I have a, a stone in my pack, or I'll keep it in my truck. So if I need to touch it up. If I'm going on long hunts, mm -hmm. you know, if I if I have to use it, basically I sharpen it every time I use it. Yes. Um, so I mean, I, I I keep it really sharp, um, which just makes it safer and it makes everything go a little bit quicker. Yes. Um, you're less likely to you know uh, hit any of the guts if you're doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, it, definitely having the quality gear like that and having a good set of knives is is, is it's key. It's key because I know when I. I have two flight boxes, so it's like they're, they're in a box. We have we have Cutco for a reason, so it's like these these ones are mine, mm -hmm. and so I always keep them sharp. As soon as they start getting dull, I sharpen them real quick. I, I don't have a stone right now, but I have a, a just simple handheld one. You just drag your blades across a little V type mm -hmm. that works great. It's like it's you you go until you know it's sharp, and then you just go right back at it. And it's like don't create more work because if it's a dull blade, like those who watch like Master Chef and you watch these people watch Gore Ramsey sharpen sharpen his blade, and you watch the chefs out there using their knives and they didn't sharp sharpen their blades, or they didn't repetitively sharpen their blades. It's like that's why you're struggling. That's why your your fillet looks like garbage. <laughs> yeah, I've I've even gotten in the last year using a I made a uh, strop. Strop. What's that? Uh, uh, Barbers used to use them to sharpen their blades. Oh, okay. Like a leather strop. Mm -hmm. um, one of the guys that we work at the LHI is into metalwork. Okay. And he he makes his own you know tools out of metal. Mm -hmm. Black a blacksmith. If he listens to this, he'll say I'm not a blacksmith, but that's as close as I can <laughs> remember what his the term he calls what he does. Um, he told and he goes, you know what's really a good material to make a strop out of? It's fire hose. Interesting. Outside jacketing of a fire hose. Okay. Hold, and then you put this stropping material in it, which is like a brick, eh, about the size of a big black Sharpie marker. Okay. You rub that on there. Then you, you'll use your, I have like a, a one of those files that has like the crisscross. Mm -hmm. I'll do like a couple strips with that, and then I'll have a whetstone, mm -hmm. and then I'll finish it off with that strop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the jokes this guy that we work with uh, has, has told me, he goes, your knife isn't sharp enough until you're a little bit afraid to use it. So <laughs> that's, goes, a, that's a good philosophy right there. <laughs> yeah. So he goes, don't be afraid, but it's not sharp until you're just a little bit afraid to actually have to use it. <laughs> so, um, you know, that is, you know, it's a little, that method is a little bit more difficult to use on like a, a flimsy knife, like a flay knife. Yeah. But a lot of your boning knives and stuff like that, it's, it's a great way to do it. And, that, and again, that's at home mm -hmm. and before you're going hunting, you know, in the field, um, I have a, a, a smaller sharpener that looks like the size of a, a pen. Okay. That I'll just keep in my bag that I need to, but usually I'm not going out of the woods unless I know, unless my knife is, 
is sharp. Yes. Um, I, I enjoy preparation a lot. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit too much where I over-prepare for a lot of things. But, uh, you know, it's making sure you have everything that you need and then some things that you think you'll need in the event of... Uh, harvesting an animal. Harvesting an animal. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of shots of opportunity. Um, you know, squirrels. Yeah, that's, uh, oh Jesus, you're so annoying. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've taken I've taken my fair amount of, of rabbits walking in and out of a tree stand. I have mm-hmm. an arrow that's that's my, I call it my junk arrow. Yes. Because I'm not going to put a nice broadhead through, through mm-hmm. a squirrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a rock. I have the exact <laughs> same thing too. But it, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, I, I enjoy, the, the trifecta would, for me would be, like say you go out hunting, Mm-hmm. And some of the places where I hunt have uh, trunk screen access to. Oh, to be able to. And I thought and I didn't do it last year, but I've thought about um, bringing a fishing pole with me and storing that underneath some tree, mm-hmm. and then midday hitting in a trout, hitting in a couple trout streams, and then at least hopefully I can come back with something. I was out um, probably about three weeks ago now and came back. Um, we were doing some scouting on this land and came uh-huh. back with two nice trout for the fryer. Very cool. So at least I had that going for me. So if I don't shoot a deer, I'm coming back with something. That's a good idea. That's a good. I, now the property I showed you that I hunt, I don't have. It's a small, too small of a stream to actually mm-hmm. produce anything. But that's a good idea. Now getting uh, an opportunity hunter. Last year I, I actually grunted in a coyote. Really. Forty yards. I, I didn't. I it's what I guess it was because I had a pretty good range of that for the eyesight because I shoot a lot at forty, and it's like I, I hand my fiance the the, the 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 range finder, but as soon as he saw it move, it's like because I already had one already knocked because I was waiting for a buck to show up or, or anything to show up. But I handed her the range finder to to to, to, uh, to range it for me so this way then I can adjust my single pin and, and put an arrow in it because it's like I don't like nobody likes coyotes, but it's like that was the first time I ever did it. And I I didn't expect my grunt game to be that good to bring <laughs> in a, a coyote. And then we watched it and it's the, the field we watched it out because it's um, where we're setting at that he want about every 10 yards you stop and look. Go no tenure, stop and look. And it's about 330 yard field from straight line. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we watched him, it's like, you know, next time, next time I'm in, I'm, I'm going to put an arrow in you. Yeah. I've done that with uh, one of the, you know, you used to have those Primo's uh, cans. Yes, I have a set of those myself. I've, I've, I've called in coyotes that way too. Mm-hmm. I've had, uh, I have taken one coyote with a bow. Okay. Um, this. About 10, 12 years ago. Okay. It was just one of those shots of opportunity. I had a doe walking up to me, and the doe stopped, turned right around, and walked back, and I hadn't moved an inch. And I was kind of like, it was wow. one of those years where I was struggling to see deer. Mm-hmm. This was mid October, was the first year I saw. Wow. And uh, just having a hard time, you know, busy in school and stuff, wasn't getting out as much as I used mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I look over to my left hand side, and at about 20 yards away, is a coyote standing there watching this doe. Oh yeah. So I ended up taking that coyote and was able to get that within about, you know, ran about 80 yards and piled up. Um, so I mean, that was that was kind of it was one of the only coyotes I've actually shot was with the bow. And I got buddies of mine that go out all the time with their, you know, big rifles with their huge thermal scopes and oh yeah, kind of like I just do them with a bow. <laughs> exactly. It's. Uh... For an engagement ring, I got my fiance a six hour P320 because she didn't want a ring. She wanted a uh, she wanted a firearm. So I was like, "Well, when you got a unicorn, you get what you want." 
Yeah. Uh, and and I, was, I, I was at work today. I was talking to a couple girls that, that I'm next to, and they're younger, so that's calling them a girl is, is about right. And I was asking them to either one of them hunt or fish, and I told them, I was like, no, we really don't. It's like, well, that's understandable. If you don't have the passion for it, don't do it. But I tell you what, if you did, that rock gets bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so she says, next time we go out for the season, it's like, we call it a coyote. It's like, we'll both be carrying. It's like, you can go ahead and do what you want to do because I'll feel a little more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely, uh, that is that is definitely nice. And we got, uh, you know, I've done, you know, Christmas gifts for my wife. She got, I got her a 22 Pistons. We like to go shooting every once in a while mm-hmm. and try different stuff and, you know, go on. You know, borrow different uh, firearms from either my father, some old yeah. We call it tired iron. You know, guns you haven't shot in a while. It was, uh, last weekend, my uh, father gave me a Remington Model 11. Mm-hmm. That was uh, my great grandfather's. Wow. Um, it, if you're not familiar with the Remington Model 11, it was made after the uh, uh, Browning model. Wow. That's an that's an impressive firearm. So they, uh, um, you know, it's old, still works fantastic. Long mm-hmm. gauge. I mean, I plan on, you know, if I, I plan on using it, mm-hmm. figuring out some way if I use it for duck hunting or use it for, um, you know, going out dove hunting and getting the correct shot for it. I mean, it is a 12 gauge and yeah. they're small. Uh, so, you know, I plan on using it. be interesting to use. I like using old guns. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my, uh, I always carry, you know, when I go gun hunting, I have my, my bolt action, my go-to tack driver. Yeah. My next is my grandpa's 35 uh, Marlin 336 and 35 Remington. Oh, a beautiful firearm right there. Yeah, it's, you know, and then I've taken deer with that as well. Yeah. Um, I like going out with old stuff, different, you know, I've some people get the same firearm they've had for years. Old faithful, yeah, my, I completely understand that. Yeah, my father's had the same Remington uh, 7600 bolt action 306. Mm-hmm. that he's used he bought with his high school graduation money <laughs> he is has used it every season since mm-hmm. um, I've gone from uh, 7600 243 to a Remington 700 and mm-hmm. 7 millimeter Magnum mm-hmm. Remington 700 and 243 okay I then I went to I bought a uh, Savage Bolt action, 308. Okay. With a heavy barrel. Ah, bolt barrel. You're nice. Yeah, with a Bushnell scope on it. It's heavy, but like you put that thing up to your shoulder, you know whatever you're pointing at is going to die. Yeah, it's so just, true. It's super, super accurate. And uh, um, this where I'm at, I mean, mm-hmm. I could get a bug up my rear end and go find, try something else, or go back to a gun I used to hunt with. Yeah. And I just like trying something new, um, you know, something different. I may. My backup gun this year may be my muzzleloader. Um, by the time muzzleloader season comes around, we kind of have enough venison. True. But, you know, if I decide to be selective this year again, I may mm-hmm. bring my muzzleloader up with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had times where I'm like, God, I should have just brought my muzzleloader. I got a nice muzzleloader and a ham shot. I don't think I've shot a deer with it yet. There you I've go. hunted with it a couple I'm times. Christen it. Yeah, I've had chances. Um, but I mean, at that certain, by that time of year, you know, with the way the management plan, I guess we have out of my family's place, um, you know, I had does in front of me, but that was the year that it seemed like everybody and their father was coming out and they'd end up with a doe mm-hmm. and we weren't seeing too many. 
And then we're kind of like, okay, maybe we, by the end of the season, we're kind of like, okay, maybe we should kind of calm down on the does and yeah. just go for boxing. Fair and enough. I remember sitting in my sitting in a tree stand and had four does walk right past me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't shoot. Maybe I should have. I mean, four does means that there are does there, but I mean, we had plenty of meat. And I would probably just cut it up and either give it to friends or family or, or, or just figure out something you know ate more medicine that year mm-hmm. um, but uh, maybe maybe this next year I wouldn't mind trying to get one with my muzzle loader I think that's why I steer towards the boat because my dad has always been a muzzle loader when it comes to whitetail it's always been a muzzle loader and it's like his favorite uh, muzzle is not out of commission but it's like it's that whole one shot one kill feeling and that's why I went with the boat because it's like granted you can you can knock an arrow pretty quick much faster than you can do on a crossbow much slower than you can do than you rack one in the chamber but that whole idea of just that one shot one kill being very minimalistic and just being dead accurate at it it's like my dad has horrible he used to have horrible eyesight he used to usually wear trifocals then he'd spend 12 grand per eye and then all of a sudden he, he's down to single lenses known the guy all my life would wear trifocals now he doesn't wear single lenses and he can shoot better than anybody I know yeah. even back in the 80s because like he used to do a lot of trap shooting and he just knew the pattern he just he just he just knew his firearm and uh, when he when he become good enough to get first place trophies and medals and stuff like that, that was before he had me then things changed but uh uh, it, then having guns was put a whole other meaning to it, you know. And it's like he told me here just recently, like he used to, he used to live in California, so he's like, I'm gonna be poor, we'll go back to Iowa, because this is when this way. Then he, he was able to go out hunting and supply uh, meat for my brother and I and my my mom. So it's great. So it's like we grew up on venison all the time, and we got to the point where we didn't want hamburger. We just like so it's like they had to re-strategize, reintroduce hamburger because we'd run out of it because all we cook. So it's like, but he, his friends would always hunt and guys 10 12 deep you know and then as soon as that time progresses as the kids get older well now that windows down would you if you know now that you're going into bow getting more serious into bow hunting do you think you'd ever go to like a recurve or a longbow do you know that has crossed my mind because I, I had some somebody brought that up today actually about doing that because her, her dad that's all he does and he's got 13 different targets out and she, she broke it all down for me and stuff like that and you know what? It's crossed my mind, but it's like I feel like I need to I need to master one, get my ten thousand hours, and move into that because it's like recurve. It's it's your range is shorter. You have to be far more accurate, and you don't have a, a peep side. You don't have a an eighty percent release. It's like it's a, it's all tension. It's all you, and I don't feel my uh, my elbow strong enough to handle something like that at this point sure. in time. But otherwise, that will be a, an object in my in my in my future. I have one. Mm-hmm. I used to shoot it more, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, maybe someday, but I don't, the one I have, I don't think is good enough to do what I want it to do. I gotcha. I think what I'd like to, I've seen a couple of them, mm-hmm. and now, you know, granted, I just bought a brand new triax a month ago. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little money down there. <laughs> so, that's like, a little bit, so I gotta wait a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, it'd be interesting to try. Uh, do it. I've seen a couple guys that are that are really accurate with them. Mm-hmm. It's something to toy around with. Um, you know, last year I got it. This last spring I got into uh, shooting carp a little bit. Okay. With the bow, I ended up here. This is going back to uh, getting your kids in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and my son went out my bow one day. Okay. And I bought a spool <laughs> offline. And I'm like, spool arrow, okay, I'm not going to take, I, at that time I had a Matthew adrenaline. Okay. I'm not, I really don't want to take adrenaline 
out in the boat and possibly drop it in the water. I got to find something a little bit cheaper. I gotcha. Bought a compound bow for three dollars at a rubber sale. <laughs> oh, awesome! And I was I come home and I was dancing like I got a bow. I'm ready to go. Let's go carp <laughs> shooting. And the next, the you know the you can shoot carp in Wisconsin at uh, um, it's the first Saturday in May. Mm-hmm. And I used to do this as a kid growing up on the river. I used to paddle my canoe over mm-hmm. um, in Green Island and just get so many carp. It was, just, it was so much fun. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it all the time. Now I'm here. I'm 34 years old. I'm bringing my son out with me. And I'm like, as I'm driving up to this spot in my boat, mm-hmm. I'm like, God, I hope these carp are still here. I haven't checked on these carp for 20 some years. <laughs> I hope they're still there. Yeah. And we rolled up and I remember hearing splashing oh, yeah. in this area where I used to go all the time. Like, uh-huh. oh, thank God they're here. Because if they're not here, I don't. We brought our fish, our regular conventional tackle, thinking that we were going to, mm-hmm. you know, if this carp thing doesn't work out, we're going to have some stuff fun. At least have some fun casting. And mm-hmm. uh, we got up in there and I realized that I'm not as good as I used to be with a car- shooting carp with a boat. I wish I had my carp spear, but that mm-hmm. was in my parents' basement. Um, I uh, We ended up with one carp that was about 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's pretty big. Yeah, but it took me about 30 to 40 shots to get that carp. Oh, well, you know, at least you got 30%. Yeah, now your, your percentage is now dropping to get a hit on the first try. So. Yeah. But that whole perspective of looking at the water and looking at where it's at, it's like, it's wow, it, it's, it's, it, it takes a lot of practice. It does. I mean, depending on how deep the fish is in the water, mm-hmm. how far they are away. I mean, you're you're doing some pretty advanced geometry. And, and really quick timing. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you almost got to get the true ballistics from uh, uh, Leopold, their, their, uh, their range finder. like, range out real quick. It's like, okay, this is where you need to put it. It's like, drop it right in there. Yeah. The, the, and I was, I was so happy we got that one. And we ended up, uh, I took that cart, flayed it up, and then had uh, put it in the smoker. That's what I was wondering well, if you smoked it. That's yeah. some good meat right to smoke. It was definitely good. I wish, the only thing, it was the first time I had ever smoked carp. I wish I would have smoked it a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I got, you know, a couple pieces. We got uh, one of the fundraisers for our fire department as a game feed. Okay. And my goal was to get some a little bit different stuff. I'm like, I can get carp. Okay. So I'm going to smoke carp up. And I do a lot of the smoking in the wintertime mm-hmm. just because... It's fun to do. Yeah, it's fun to do, and hunting season's over with. I gotta mm-hmm. make myself do something, otherwise I get too lazy. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I end up, uh, you know, hopefully be able to get some more carp and be able to smoke those up. But uh, that's definitely something I'd like to get into. We've gotten into. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten sheephead before. I have not, but I heard they're quite delicious. They are. Um, we actually, my my wife is a school teacher. Okay. They had a uh, field trip to the Genoa fish hatchery. Okay. And the lady there was talking about how good sheephead tasted. Mm-hmm. So Memorial Day weekend, we went out on the river and mm-hmm. stopped at a beach, and I threw some poles with night crawlers out. And you know, we don't we don't beach like normal people. Okay. We kind of we fish, but we just stay at a beach. Oh. And you know, we go swimming, and the dogs out running around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We ended up catching a couple sheephead and about a thirty inch northern. Okay. On that. Um, so we ended up taking taking the sheephead, flayed them up. We deep fried them. They were fantastic. I, I had my insurance with that northern because in case it didn't taste good, at least we still had that northern, so the uh-huh. meal wasn't so dinner wasn't ruined that night. 
but we ended up having that sheep and it was really good. I think next time if I ever do it, or when I do it again, I'm gonna bake it instead of deep fry it. Interesting. There's a little bit, it's an oily fish. Okay. So it's a little bit uh, too much oil when you deep fry it. Ah. Uh, so I think, you know, we're, we're real good about, you know, if you ever made like foil packet dinners. Mm-hmm, I have. And just uh, put a little butter and some salt and pepper, throw them on the, you know, throw them on the grill and just cook it till you think it's about done. Yeah, the nice thing, like you said, is how, how oil it is. You may not have to add a whole lot of butter to it. It will actually be self-contained. Yeah, yeah, very true. I mean, the ones that we had, I think the one we caught was about 17 inches. I agree. They have to be a certain, they have to be over a certain size, but they can't be too terribly big. Mm-hmm. I think if you got like a sheephead around 16 to like 24 inches, you're probably mm-hmm. doing all right. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of them on the water. Oh, yes, there is. I don't is. know why people don't eat. I wish I knew about sheephead longer. I'd have been eating tons of them. That is very true. Um, actually, this past Friday, I was invited to go out uh, bow fishing and spearfishing. Really? Because, yeah, and uh, he'd been wanting me to get out there for several times his name's uh, cam jones he was the very first podcast one of the very first podcasts we recorded and we did it actually right there on the lake on in, in uh, lake lawrence right there in the boathouse it was, it was pretty cool we got destroyed by mosquitoes but it's so worth it and we wanted to go out fish or something but i got there so late and it's like one of those things where it wasn't gonna happen but he's been wanting me to get out there because it's like they're seeing some big old massive ones come up and he's got a, a nice simple rig and spear right out there but this is where we caught those big old pike and stuff mm-hmm. like that and we'll, we'll uh We'll have to make something happen this upcoming uh, between our weekends. I'll have to make something happen so this way we can get out there and do some fishing. Because I know ice fishing isn't going to be until after first of the year. Because I know I know I really don't trust the ice until like the latter end of January. Because been some of these falls have been so warm. Yeah. You know, it's like we haven't really been getting deep cold like we normally like like we used to growing up in the '90s and the '80s and such. Now, one fish I, I got to try out when I was out in Florida. The company shipped me out there for about a month or so. Now I got to, I caught my limit of bass out there and I got to feed everybody there except for one person. He doesn't like fish, which is understandable. And between the two bass, between the bass down south and the bass up north here, it's definitely a very clean flavored fish. It tastes like a panfish down there. It's so delicious, absolutely delicious. And I, 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 all I did is I just put it in a simple tinfoil oven or thing and threw it on the grill, cooked it up right there. I had to make sure I go tell the, the hotel attendants like, hey, you gotta clean these out because it's gonna start stinking pretty quick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a total different flavor between the bass up here and the bass down there. Now, bass up here, I recommend Flaying it up that day, eating it that day, and deep frying it because it's because for some people it has a very distinct flavor, very uh, gamey flavor. Which that's why we fish. That's why we hunt. We like that flavor. We want something that we can't go to store and buy. And so you're you're like a bass guy. Oh, I like all kinds of fish. Okay. I like I like bass. It's like I have some pictures of my dad and I went out here about a month or so ago. We pulled in, we caught well. We we're guessing well over 100 fish. Yeah. And we kept 42. Wow. And these these were all. Uh, uh, bluegill and so we my hands are pretty big so it's like if the, the meat of the tail and the tip and the head didn't match our palms we threw it back mm-hmm. and so we had to stop at one point because we had so much fish we had to actually throw some out we had throwing away like 20 fish because they were just too they were just they weren't they weren't worth the energy yeah but boy i we i ended up with 10 bags of fish and i actually gave to some of like to some of the co-workers that i work with because they like fish too they just don't have either the opportunity to go fishing or they don't have the, the means to go fishing like they don't have the, the equipment and stuff mm-hmm. so it's like well I'm, I'm plentiful it's like i'll give you a bag and it's like then and everybody's eating it already yeah that's definitely nice to uh, uh give those away i mean i we go along our dock to be able to get uh 
bluegills mm-hmm. fairly often. That's mm-hmm. kind of one of our uh, you know things that we do, and it's 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 really simple. Bluegills are kind of the generic. It doesn't mm-hmm. take a whole lot of skill. Um, I remember growing up before we had fishing poles, and uh, we tie lines onto our fingers mm-hmm. and just sit there and pull bluegills up like that. Poor man's fishing pole, right exactly. there. Exactly. Except now that I'm a little bit older, I realize like, man, you know, in fish in where we were fishing is one of our best northern spots. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, you know what would happen if a northern would have came up? Because I've caught northerns off the dock. Okay. While fishing for sunfish. Oh, that's good. Sunfish that I'm bringing in. Mm-hmm. Like we've we've done it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, that would have been dangerous. But it's kind of one of those things where like that's be a cool story. Yeah. To have as you get older, if you have like a little bit of a scar on your finger or something, uh-huh. like why you have that scar on your finger, you tell the story about how like you didn't have a fishing pole, you mm-hmm. just tied a line on your finger and a northern got it. And so. Yeah, I know. I've been bitten my fair share of catfish too because I'm a, I, I, my, my favorite fish to catch all the time is uh, blue cat. That's my favorite fish to catch all the time. And I have some, uh, some some scar tissue around my finger, my cuticles because I'd get my fingers down in there and pull out the hook and just snap down on them. And those who've caught catfish understand like they have their, their rows of micro teeth and they don't really do a whole lot of damage, but when they start twisting back and forth, that's when they start graining like uh, sandpaper. Exactly, as I was just gonna say, they feel exactly like sandpaper. Um, you know, I, I can't even imagine these guys down south sticking their hand all the way down there and noodling for them. I would love to try it. Mm-hmm. I've thought about it, mm-hmm. but you know, like when we're out of the river, you know, like, oh, it can't be that hard. But then you realize, like, God, I'm going to be out here all day long. Yeah, and you may end up running into an uh, an, uh, an alligator storm. Yeah, yeah. As you know, it's it's it's, it's you can't uh, uh, noodle in Minnesota, Iowa, and Wisconsin, and I believe also Illinois too. I, I don't I haven't read the DNR uh, regulation that, but yeah, you can't noodle up here. It's just uh, too dangerous because of that. What, what yeah. could be one of those factors too? I haven't talked to a DNA agent to actually confirm the why we can't do it. But you know, I would I hate to, old muskrats too. That's true. Or or t- my my <laughs> biggest thing is turtles. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had snapping turtles? I have not. I've not eaten one, but I've caught one before. Yeah. I didn't realize this was this was back in early '90s or mid '90s. I was out fishing with my dad, my uncle, and him, and we're, we we went to a known hunting hole where we can catch. Um, carp, suckers, bullheads, catfish, and it's just it just it's just plethora. I catching out, I felt like all I was catching that day was sea bass, mm-hmm. and I'm rolling it up, and all of a sudden here comes this big old turtle. I ended up ruining my dad's net on that one, but uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's like it bit through a couple of uh, spots there. It's like, well, that was a, that was a fun experience. Yeah. Neither one of us had. This is back when we didn't have cell phones or disposable camera so it's like well it's just a fond memory between all three of us <laughs> and the reason why I remember that is so vivid in my mind is that we watched um, SummerSlam that evening on Sunday and I had burnt my legs from thighs all the way down to the tip of my toes oh they were they were barbecued they were roasted yeah, yeah I, did, we, I did that more than once I didn't learn my lesson yeah we've had we've had turtle I've had turtle a couple times um, mm-hmm. a friend of the family has a game fee every once in a while uh-huh. and, um he does them with kebabs and shrimp, mm-hmm. uh, with turtle and shrimp on the kebab. And I, I liken the the texture of the snapping turtle to like scallops. Really, that's a very um, flavorful, very silky meat. Yeah, it's it's like a. I personally think scallops are are a little bit denser. Okay. Than I've ever had in my restaurants or mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like to me, it just in. 
he'll have these kebabs and I'll just eat a ton of them because it's so it's it's an interesting thing and, and I I haven't caught one I've never as much fishing as I've done mm-hmm. I take that back I've caught one and I ended up I didn't know what to do with it mm-hmm. and called a guy and he took it mm-hmm. um, but that was basically off a of, off a of, we used to uh, growing up we used to use uh, live bait uh, with a big bobber for turtles. Okay. Yeah, so you catch it, catch a turtle. And I ended up catching a turtle that one Just night. Just like that. Okay. And the guy, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. My dad ends up gets on the phone and calls the guy and says, "Hey, you want this turtle my kid caught?" And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this old codger comes rolling up and it's like, <laughs> "Throw the throw the trunk." So mm-hmm. we grabbed. He took he we grabbed the whole pole because I was carrying it up up to the house. Yeah. You know, just with the pole on it, and he ended up coming coming past, and he mm-hmm. put the pole over the top of his trunk, cut the line, and put the turtle in his trunk, and he thanked me, and he took off. Yeah, the turtle. I would like to be around somebody that knows what they're doing and just watch them do it, because I know in one of the earlier episodes, media they're talking about a Japanese method where they take a stainless steel rod and they go straight down the spine. EKG, they call it. Yeah, there we go. And 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 those who are unfamiliar with what it does, you you send electric through it, and it and it gets past the rigor portion, so this way you're not tearing the meat or it becomes rough. Mm-hmm. Now, those who have butchered their fair share of deer and it's like, like the meat tastes bad or rough, you know, is they cut it, they cut, they cut it up and they butcher it during rigor. And rigor is like a bell curve. It has it, it has its peak and then drops back down again. That's why, well, myself personally, that's why I like to hunt in the wintertime because in this way then I can look, I have friends around here where I can hang the deer up and come back a week later because that's what I did to do this past year with my buck is that I, had, I shot it, took it down, hung it up, went back to work the next day yeah and that's all i could do because it's like and then we just put a bucket underneath it let it drip dry and then it's like then it just the meat just so delicious Mm -hmm. oh man you know we just hit two hours really yeah we just hit two hours this is a very good conversation so if you if you want to reproduce some of your uh tell people how they can reach you on instagram or facebook or twitter you can if not no big deal um the only thing i have right now is is facebook Mm -hmm. uh just Tony Holinka, search me up. If you guys uh, in the area or want to talk about hunting or mm-hmm. any outdoorsmanship, any kind of stuff, I get uh, really like enjoy talking to different people. Um, you know, the last couple of years I've gotten into uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. Mm-hmm. Met a lot of people through that. A lot of other guys that are you know they like to get after it and like to hunt hard, hunt different things and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an enjoyable time. We got got along really great with a lot of met a lot of guys that uh, are pretty good friends, and we get to we don't get to meet up as much as I'd like. But I mean, we're you know text each other fairly often about we usually it's, there's usually a crescendo around deer season of all of us talking to each other. So uh, we definitely enjoy our time together. So. All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in. Please uh, take your time. Go rate review complain about us, whatever. I'm here to improve. So thank you for all listening.